What if you knew right now, you know, that your life was going to end in two years? Like that would completely change how you lived your life. I feel awful. I felt awful since I watched the trailer. I already knew I was going to hell. I do think one of the goals of growing up and having your life get better as you do that is to self-actualize so that you're not just following somebody else's script. You don't get this in slocky science fiction. No. This no. is slow, hard sci-fi. It if really you go is. In and you're looking for a popcorn movie, you are not gonna find it here. What are you, a nerd? Look yeah. at him, he's a nerd. <laughs> we got a nerd here. Yeah. <laughs> Greetings! Dave here to welcome you to Long Walk Short Drink, episode 94. As in 1994, a seismic year, (laughs) voice cracking in the life of this young man talking to you today. (laughs) Oh man, I, I don't even know where to get into it. Usually I start to rattle off the movies, but if you're watching the video, you can see they're all around me. So I had to have a strategy so great was this year and the sort of formative uh, experiences of my tastes and interests. Holy shit. Okay. Um, So let's get into it. Um, We're going to go chronologically to to try to help this. Now, uh, although not for the entire year, but we're going to start with in 2019, I think the 25th year after 1994, uh, we were going to do, we started to do these, I made a list of like movies that were super formative for me. And we were going to try and do a reoccurring segment on the show where we did like 25 minutes for 25 years, 25 for 25. And uh, we'd go through these films and we just got a couple in, uh, but I wanted to, before we ended up, you know, talking about things that weren't 25 years in the past. Uh, but so I'm going to start with those and reference the shows that you can go to hear about like the 25 minute discussion of those films. And there are, there are several that just through the course of doing the show ended up with their own episodes or huge uh, discussions devoted to them anyway. So I will refer you to all of that stuff as we go along. Hopping in now because I went on for so- too long about this stuff it's a it's a huge year for me but i went on too long so what you're going to see is a lot of these kind of cuts and we're just going to i'm going to name this stuff and if you're curious to hear more about this you can head over to my uh instagram page where i've been posting all these kind of intros from the uh the 90s shows here um my instagram tv uh tab and you can watch the whole uh thing it's like 40 minutes just 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 too much to uh insert here and um if you look in the and if there's enough space in the description i will put like a various shows where we talk about all of it but um anyway we're gonna do a quick run through i'm just gonna list them off for you right fast but if you're curious go over to instagram david ullman u-l-l-m-a-n you can check out the full uh my full sort of ramblings which i thought were fast 
Turns out not so much. That's why the podcast is called Long Long Short Drink. Okay, so starting off chronologically for these sort of movies that I named uh, that have the segments. Reality Bites came out in uh, February 18th of uh, 1994 and on episode 67 uh we get into the 25 minutes for 25 years also love the soundtrack to this um coming up next we have eight seconds starring the late i think great luke perry and uh the 25 for 25 on this one is long walk short drink episode 68 you know what else was released chronologically speaking that year the crow starring the late truly great especially in this movie brandon lee i could go on and on forever about the crow as i do and will (laughs) but we'll leave it at there for now episode 57 for a lot more next one in the list this one we never did get to uh but we would have talked about it's a weird movie wolf Starring Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer and directed by Mike Nichols. Um, James Spader is in this. It was kind of, it was part of this like group of movies coming out around that time that were like kind of retelling the, the classic monster films that I love so much from Universal, like Frankenstein, the wolf, here we go, the Wolfman, Dracula. So speaking of that, where did I put that? Um, they collected them in this, uh, so I do have a VHS also of Wolf, as well as you can see Dracula and Frankenstein we'll get to here in a minute, which also had some behind the scenes stuff. I Obviously, behind the scenes are a big deal to me. Ah, it's all coming out. It's all coming out. Wolf, admittedly, maybe not a great movie, flawed movie, but uh, an interesting one nonetheless with ton, tons of like talent associated with it. Um, so the next one that would have been in the 25 for 25 came out in august of that year august 26th 1994 natural born killers now i'm holding here the double uh, cassette that came out of the director's cut it was a letterbox edition in 1996 i think this finally kind of came out but it's a very graphic film of course directed by oliver stone from a story by uh, quentin tarantino and starring uh, woody harrelson and julia Juliette Lewis, excuse me. I can't get into the cast of all these things. But again, and then soundtrack by Mr. Trent Reznor, uh, done on the road. Nine Inch Nails song Burn is on this, as well as there's several Nine Inch Nails songs in the film. And that was part of this kind of, uh, I don't know, ubiquity of Nine Inch Nails and coolest shit projects that really made me a fan of uh, his for life. So nice uh, DVD version of this as well also in 1994 next up on that initial list we would have done a 25 for 25 is ed wood i think about this movie all the time tim burton's black and white film uh, at sort of adaptation of the light of edward d wood jr notoriously the worst director of all time made plan nine from outer space um johnny depp in a terrific performance of course martin landau as bella as an aged uh, bella lugosi I, Bill Murray here. Oh man, this is such a great and charming movie, a real standout in Tim Burton's uh, film catalog, and kind of got the quirkiness of his pictures, but also the charm and love of cinema of Ed Wood. I just, you know what? I'm gonna watch this bastard, maybe tonight. Um, also in 1994, next up on the 25 for 25, Pulp Fiction, 
I mean, a game changer, right? All of this shit was game changing for me. You know, holding the script here, I got the book still. I got the, uh, I got ended up getting like a special edition of the soundtrack. And I got this Blu-ray that I have never opened. Um, I don't want to say too much about it, but uh, you can look up Quentin Tarantino and Bruce Lee. He's been a real... F- I don't have anything good to say. I don't want to say too much about it. I hope to someday be able to feel more warmth towards him than I have because of the last few years. And I will leave it at that. Um, next up in the 25 for 25 would have been another in the series of those retellings, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So I'm going to pluck out the, actually, I'm not going to pluck out the VHS because the audio version, the audiobook abridged version of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein has the very cool, like spooky, um, theatrical one sheet of the body hanging uh on a on a, on a slab and a and a shaft of light so this adaptation of mary shelley's frankenstein executive produced by francis ford coppola starring kenneth branagh and robert de niro as the creature and a whole cast helena bottom carter like the oh jesus the talent involved in this written by frank darabont who's going to come up again later I think he was, he did a polish on that script or something. He said, it's like the thing he was most proud of, but he was really, people weren't thrilled with how this movie came out. And so I won't get into it too much. I can understand what they're talking about. It's directed by Branagh and Branagh's in it. And this was around the time of all his kind of Shakespearean, um, you know, he was bringing to life like the film, like the, the plays of William Shakespeare and stuff. And, and he caught a lot of criticism for being shirtless in this movie a lot and in vain, but if you think about it, it's kind of fucking perfect for Victor Frankenstein. Like he is the kind of ultimate narcissist. So anyway, um, I really loved this movie. I remember it coming out in November of 1994. Uh, you know, once the crow came out, my taste really shifted and changed and certain things felt silly. This did not, this was, you know, terrific. Uh, I thought fucking clerks, man. (laughs) I'm trying to, holding the mic. I'm not, I got, don't have my computer glasses on and I don't have a stand for the mic. I thought that'd be fun. I don't know. I'm second guessing at all. Came out originally on November 9th, 1994, Kevin Smith's cinematic debut. Um, you know, seminal work. I'm holding the Clerks X uh, DVD and then the, the Blu-ray, which combines a lot of that. We talk um, about kind of Kevin Smith in general for pretty much the whole episode. And I think this time that uh, the bride asked him a question in one of his Q and A's and just his general influence and inspiration. And of course, episode 37 in a row (laughs) of long walk, short drink. So you can check that out. uh, Maybe, you know, encourage you to revisit clerks as clerks three just finished filming in in New Jersey. Uh, Next up. And I do think last on the list, uh, interview with the vampire um i was really into this movie it came out also was came out the week after frankenstein and uh so adaptation of Anne rice's book starring tom cruise brad pitt um a young kirsten dunce uh who who else here um neil jordan directed but uh it's got somebody antonio banderas oh 
it's a weird ass movie <laughs> admittedly there was so much like outrage when tom cruise was cast as lestat but anyway i really like this film um i'm kind of curious to check it out again i got the soundtrack with a killer like guns and roses uh version fucking christian slater is in that movie too and everybody there was so much like young people dying that was river phoenix was supposed to play the um christian slater's part of the interviewer yeah jesus oh man i could talk so much about this and i'm uh, about all these films as i'm sure i already have this was like the early days of the internet i got the script which i think Anne rice wrote the script am i right yeah adapted from the novel or adapted from the novel by Anne rice. actually no it's not written by Anne rice scratch that i don't know who wrote this but uh i got it from the internet in the early early days of the internet um oh oh i didn't get the i think this came out in the fall too but the other uh film starring brad pitt to come out in 1994 was legends of the fall which um i don't know i was really into that i was in so much of these like mopey brad kitt played like two mopey dude characters and i was a you know an emo teen i'm not sure that these like portraits of uh pouty young men <laughs> did me any favors but uh or at least not the way i took them but i really like this movie then i really like it i th- i would think i still would like it now uh, i like this dvd anyway uh anthony hopkins aiden quinn aiden quinn also as the captain walton and frankenstein he was kind of every and fucking benny in june he was everywhere also two films in 1994 these actors working hard mr jean-claude van damme here i'm holding up time cop and street fighter maybe his two most commercially successful films street fighter is definitely and by far my least favorite jean-claude van damme movie if you can imagine a young man's like world cracked open from these type of action movies to the crow and the literary world that that kind of opens up with the comic and to to music as well then i go see like street fighter and it's just like what the fuck is this but i think time cop came out in the fall too but even that i was just first off it's sci-fi which we're going to talk about more uh in this episode uh of long walk short drink and my maybe reservations about it but i don't know big year for van damme not my favorite year for him um oh also shows some stuff we've got full segments and shows devoted to the professional the later to come out like on home video releases you know in the years after not not at first but ultimately like the european versions so they call them leon the professional um came out in november of that year a lot of this well a lot of stuff i've mentioned i did see in theaters i think all this stuff actually because it was so formative for me but certain stuff like this I'd, well i didn't see clerks in theaters so anyways i some of the stuff i encounter later but i'm talking about it when it actually came out um leon the professional in episode 73 i think that has a fun name like boomstick i don't remember whatever but we talk about leon the professional with twinkie uh, who will be joining us on this episode of the show as well. I believe the professional was among the like initial films he wanted to kind of talk about with us when he first started coming on the show. So um, I think we did like an extended 25 for 25 in this. Now we did a whole show on the Shawshank Redemption written and directed by Frank Darabont from the Stephen King novella. And uh, this is episode 62 of Long Walk Short Drink. You can hear us talk all about this i i didn't have the fucking courage to watch this until well i think we did that episode um so but now of course it holds a space in my heart oh um i meant to mention around the professional uh immortal beloved starring gary oldman as beethoven came out that year and i think i probably well no i didn't 
do the speech in the professional show, but like the, the I like this movie. I ended up listening to the soundtrack a lot. I fucking love watching Gary Oldman like as Beethoven trying to direct when he can't hear. Oh, it's great. It's great. I recommend seeking that out. A couple of random movies that I still have. Uh, Laserdisc. <laughs> We're not going to get into these too much. Laserdisc of Forrest Gump. I have it. I don't know why. And uh, <laughs> super random. I mean, not random, but it's going to seem odd. Um, Terminal Velocity. <laughs> with Charlie Sheen and Nastasha Kinski. So it was Nastasha Kinski. As, as I discovered her work in this. <laughs> Or her beauty, rather, and sought out all kinds of like her, the hers. She's been in so many movies, but uh, I haven't seen this in forever. I just remember what is that dude's name? Oh, I actually don't know what his name is, but he he's got a dyed dyed blonde hair in this movie, and he grabs and goes, "What are you, the boyfriend?" Ah! <laughs> and then he kept calling him Charlie Sheen boyfriend. I thought that was so funny. Anyway, premiering on television in 1994. Uh, my so-called life with uh, Clara Danes and a young Jared Leto. I mean, young Clara Danes, also young Jared Leto Jord- at Jordan Catalano and Jordan Catalano comes up in this episode of the show as well. <laughs> I got the soundtrack for this one. Uh, I, I rewatched that show. Um, the beautiful shout factory sort of box set here came out years ago. It's goddamn great. All right, and then lastly on the media front, how about The Year in Rock? Yeah, that's right. I got a VHS of 1994 Year in Rock. I'm not sure they made a lot of these, but 94 was a fucking amazing year for movies and music. It's my 1999 in the episode one of our show, and maybe again we'll do it on episode 99 coming up, but that's Palmer's big year for film, 94. Jesus. All right, in March of that year, the goddamn Downward Spiral came out the Dave Matthews band's uh, EP recently. Uh, and I, normally I wouldn't mention an EP, but the version of All Along the Watchtower on this was fucking everything to Jackson and I. It is a great one. I mean, this, th- that band's version of Watchtower is amazing anyway. Also, Halloween is on here. Uh, and later that year, of course, the, the major uh, label debut, Under the Table and Dreamin' came out. Now, people make fun of Dave Matthews a lot. And I have said this before, I'll say it a fucking million times. He is a singular, original, instantly identifiable, undeniable talent. Period. Got that, motherfuckers? Like, he may not be your cup of tea. I don't listen to him all the time. But it's undeniable. Knock it off. Give him a goddamn break. Marin. Everybody. (laughs) Talking to Mark Marin. Okay, 1994, Woodstock. The major label debut of Rusted Root. Jeff Buckley's full-length debut, Grace. Fucking terrific album. I have it. I bought it later on vinyl. Um, but Jesus, what a tragic thing for him to have passed away so soon. Um, his version of Hallelujah, I don't know. It's still, for my money, the best. It made me cry the first probably 10 times I heard it. I always cried. And um, he does the version that he does, which I think had been done maybe by John Cale or something like that prior. I could be getting that wrong. Is really the one that everybody does now. Um, most people don't play like the Leonard Cohen or don't sing the Leonard Cohen verses from any. Anyway, I'm not going to get into it. They're, they're all Leonard Cohen lyrics, but um, okay. Um, in September, oh, so much. Yeah. 
in September, Eric Clapton's All Blues album. Then the, then the next week in September of 1994, on the 20th, Jamie Walters came out with his uh, self-titled debut album. Um, so he was the dude from the Heights saying, how do you talk to an angel? Uh, I think I was, I remember being in high school and like talking to some young lady who had a, like a teen magazine and we we're looking through it and, and he was in it for his, he had an album. I was like, that guy's got an album. I have to get it. I got it. Listen <laughs> to it endlessly. I really like it. <laughs> All right. Getting to the end of the year on November 22nd, Vitology, Pearl Jam's incendiary third and fucking weird. Also a uh, third record came out now actually verses and vitology both came out on vinyl like two, two weeks before maybe not two weeks on verses i don't know but maybe before the cd to try to kind of they use their their clout at the time to kind of try to bring back the and of course vitology has that the song the ode to vinyl spin the black circle this was a time when vinyl is kind of dead i know it's come back since then but it was because of this and because of them that i started collecting at least their records and then like U2 and stuff like that in, in, in the mid to late 90s. All right, last album of that year, Bush's 16 Stone. As much as I, you know, fell in love with Pearl Jam, I think Bush was, why well, no, Bush was my brother's favorite band and he used to play all their songs endlessly as I would play always Pearl Jam songs. Um, and uh, I, I got into him a little bit, not as much as him, but, but plenty. And I mean, if you look at this fucking everything zen, it's easy to maybe be dismissive of Bush. I don't know. I don't know who's doing that. I, I, I'm trying. I, I, maybe I am. I don't mean to be. But everything Zen, Little Things, Come Down, Machine Head, and Glycerine, those are five fucking monster hits. Get off their case. Get off their case. Get off Dave Matthews' case. Get after... All... <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, of course, and as always, we are not talking about any of those things in this actual episode of Long Walk, Short Drink. Just like we're not talking about hurricanes, state attacks on sexual and reproductive rights, Afghanistan, or any number of the things perhaps we should be, or anything remotely timely. <laughs> yes, we are going to be joined by our good friend Twinkie, Palmer and I. Palmer and I are going to be joined by our good friend Twinkie to talk about the 1982 and 2017 films Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049, respectively. It is definitely a free-flowing conversation between those two films, and um, because of that, we like we don't talk through like the plots necessarily. So that being the case, I want to insert just a little bit of the two trailers uh, here in the opening, so that you at least have some sense of like what's going on and what the plot of those films are, and then I think you'll be able to enjoy the conversation just fine. So here's the first one from 1982. This is the, I bring it up in the show later, but the voice you're going to hear here is actually Harrison Ford, though I didn't recognize it. Um, and he's kind of telling you about the plot of Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner uh, from 1982. A Blade Runner's job is to hunt down replicants, manufactured humans you can't tell from the real thing. What's this? Roy Batty, probably the leader. There was just one outfit making replicants that superhuman. The Terrell Corporation. Mr. Deckard, Dr. Eldon Terrell. I don't get it, Tyrell. Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. I was looking for six replicants in a city of 106 million people. You ever see this girl, huh? 
never seen a buzzer. What I didn't know was they were looking for me. And now here's a segment of the trailer of Blade Runner 2049. Every civilization was built off the back of a disposable workforce. But I can only make so many. Happy birthday. There is an order to things. That's what we do here. We keep order. is built on a wall that separates kind. Tell either side there's no wall. You bought a war. You're a cop. I had your job once. I was good at it. I know. What do you want? I want to ask you some questions. All right. So we're going to get to that uh, conversation with Twinkie, uh, which has a nice little prelude that that uh, he divulges something, a betrayal of sorts that uh, we have to move through. It was really fun. Um, but anyway, uh, before we do that, I just want to tell you very quickly, kind of in the in the world of like things that I've uh, made or that have been published or whatever since I last talked to you. Well, first, I want to start that uh, by saying how much I appreciate all the feedback we got from the the most recent episode, the Cabin Kids Volume Five, with my old friend Jackson, Cabin Kid Jackson, and um, all you know, I I posted many as well as I've refer to them like mystery links of things in the in the description and some of them were private so i got these kind of notifications when people clicked on it and it was especially nice and uh, truly humbling <laughs> to see folks click on the dreaming out loud documentary the first documentary that i attempted kind of as we call it the cabin kid documentary now i use humbled there because i'm like oh, i'm so used to people not paying attention to anything that i do and loving the idea that folks will seek stuff out but that is not for, it's not that great <laughs> a 90 minute, I like the music. Anyway, it's a, I was found myself feeling a little embarrassed or vulnerable that folks were looking at that. And I had hoped to get together um, more sort of digestible clips, but that took me another two weeks. And so I bring that up now, both to thank folks for kind of giving that a chance or, or having a look at it, uh, but also to say, if you started it and you're like, I, oof, I, I like you, pal, but um, you can now see like a three, three and a half minute sort of uh, kind of extended trailer slash opening um, of the of the piece. And I attached it both in a, a new blog post. So if you go to davidalman.net slash blog, you can see kind of this, this is a good sort of pairing to like this section of these intros of like stuff that I made, but the uh, kind of made an extended opening extended clips slash trailers where I would, uh, you know, it's like a trailer for this movie that should never have a trailer, but it, it has all the sort of 
best bits. And so if you've been curious about that over the years or you've tried to watch it and you're like, oof, this is, uh, this is a little bit too uh, specific and niche about you and your buddies, um, I think this would be the thing to check out. So if you go to davidolman.net slash blog, you can see that uh, post with those clips or it, you might end up linking to the uh, um, 20 years of dreaming out loud about the sort of cabin concert on July 31st, 1998 that led to um, those videos. So if you're curious, you can check out that blog post, but I'll also put it on the end of the show as a, well, the namesake of the dreaming out loud archive outro segment. So there's that. Uh, I had this real surprise where I was uh, reached out to by John Fawn from Adjust Tracking, uh, kind of a, a Canadian outfit that celebrates you know, VHS culture, uh, to ask if they could show our adaptation of The Crow from finished in started in 1994 and finished in 1998. Jackson and I's uh, sort of page for page, you know, uh, retelling of of James O'Barr's iconic graphic novel got shown at an event for, in Canada in a theater projected on a screen. I think that's the first time that happened since like our first cut of the film was screened at an early comic book convention in Cleveland in like 1997. But anyway, uh, John invited me to do kind of do a very, uh, like a five minute introduction to the piece or it was my portion of it was five minutes that they played in the theater, but also posted online. So that's why I bring it up here both because it was neat for me that it happened, but also you can check it out if, you, if you'd like to. You can find it again by going to davidalman.net slash blog and looking for the lunch meat VHS and adjust tracking present the crow. Uh, the lunch meat bit, my, my new friend, Josh Schaefer, who runs lunch meat, uh, gave, he was supposed to give, I think maybe a five minute cause it was like a co-sponsored event introduction as well. And he talked for 15 minutes saying things about this project that just, I think it actually literally made me cry. <laughs> It's so goddamn nice. Anyway, I put together a little bit of that, like 60 seconds of it. You're looking at these, you know, teenagers with absolutely zero budget, like zero dollars, like no money, making this adaptation of this uh, seminal work. It's, it's really mind-blowing when you think about it. They're just doing it because they felt driven to do it. Um, they just like, we want to make this movie, or we don't. Screw it, we're done. Wait a minute. Let's let's hop back into the crow. It was like a coming of age, right? Like he from fourteen to eighteen, he made this movie with the people in his town, with no money, getting yelled at by his parents, you know, going through relationships, everything. It's incredible. It adds so much to to the shot on video world, the crow fandom world, and the world of just seeing budding filmmakers come to life through making a film it's really special and it's really cool that was such a huge and nice thing to have happen for this thing that i made so many years ago and i think now that the the documentary um run on lunch meat you know, our documentary about us making the the movie uh inertia i sounds like that's gonna maybe be out in november so that's cool to know i thought that was like a, a done deal or a dead deal but, uh, and then lastly, I wrote a post there just called speaking as a child of the nineties about, um, the weekend of the 27th, August 27th, uh, in 1991, 
Pearl Jam's debut album 10 came out in 1996. No Code came out and they did a bunch of cool celebratory things around that. So I, the, it was just a great weekend to be a Pearl Jam fan. Uh, this would have been last weekend from when I'm talking to you. So those are some sort of ways that I've been expressing myself outside of this podcast that I invite you to check out if you are so inclined. But now I'm going to turn it over to my good buddy Palmer and my good buddy Twinkie from our conversation ultimately that we had been trying to get to for a while about the Blade Runner films. How are you guys doing? I'm sorry. I was a little harried. I guess I am a little harried, but uh, I'm suddenly, you know, I'm easing into the fact that now I'm in my free time with my friends and can just relax. <laughs> but, the same uh, thing I just did for the last fucking eight hours <laughs> and sitting in the same chair. Yeah. Talking yeah. on the, the video screen. Yeah. 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 But, but about fun stuff now. <laughs> exactly. Well, and that's, I, I, man, I would be in these, I have been in these for hours on end. So, uh, talking about our stuff. So that, not a problem at all um and I, I anyways i'm not in the same space so oh good well how are you guys how are you coming to this uh, conversation today tweaky's uh, face oh my god he was just like mm. well no just I mean, similar <laughs> i so I, I was telling palmer offline weeks and weeks ago before the first you know um blade runner s- session that his <laughs> everything is just shit conversation um, is really, was really good for me. Um, and, you know, it's, I don't know, you know, just nothing that you guys haven't really talked about to some, to a large degree in this podcast is COVID. You know, of course now the Delta variant's kicking up steam again and people's fall plans and winter plans are probably going to be dealt with, you know, and, I guess I just come from a point where I feel like I'm privileged in so many ways um, that I don't give myself the freedom to, to call things shit when they are, because I feel like every time I do that, it's like, well, but what about all of the privilege in your life that you have? You know, you're going to, you're really going to complain about this. Right. But I think, you know, Palmer said it so eloquently that it just, it doesn't, it, it's just how you're feeling. And it's, you know, it's just an honesty, but you may not hundred percent be right about it. And it may be at least for me somewhat selfish or whatever, but like, it is it's just yeah. shit. It just yeah. is. And like with my job, just wrestling right now with all these kind of political things that I'm on a project that I really like, and it's giving me some opportunity to work from home. Um, and it's being threatened by things that are just so completely out of my control. These like just, uh, you know, management levels way above me making these just decisions that are incredibly frustrating. And it's kind of threatening this opportunity that I have to really engage in my job in a way that I didn't think I'd ever have the opportunity to do. And, um, you know, just various relationships in my life are challenging personal, you know, personal relationships and man, I'm just kind of done with it. 
but the problem is what there's nothing you can't you just got to keep going like what am i gonna do like you can't you can't stop yeah Yeah. (laughs) so the best thing to do is just say this is terrible and so i finally like sat down with my far too patient partner and just was like i can't like i'm so done with all of this (laughs) this is all this is all just shit i'm tired of carrying it around it's stupid yeah i'm frustrated i i you know and so it was really good to just feel unburdened in that way to be able to talk about it and so you know it's still ongoing and it's still ridiculous and spent all morning having those conversations this morning and so but you're not also expend, expelling the energy, pretending like it's not shit. Yeah, that, that right. that's like the that's the big thing that I. It, it's just frustrating. It's like let's just acknowledge this, and then we yeah. don't have to care. Like you said, we don't have to expend energy of pretending it's not what it is. Yeah. So anyway, so that's kind of where I'm yeah. at headspace. Like things are fine. Things are good. Like. I don't have a lot to complain about, but what I do, I'm going to. <laughs> because, yeah. 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 <laughs> that reminds uh, me, uh, yeah. you know, of trying, cause I'm not great at that. I like to be very solution oriented. You know, I have, if there's an issue, I'd like to solve it rather than just sit with it. And they're always told it's like, and then even just acknowledge like this sucks. And then like period, as opposed to this sucks, but, or this sucks. And we need to like, yeah. So I, I struggle with that. But I've been trying, and I found this a little bit easier than I thought, <laughs> and it doesn't help a lot, but it's a little bit of a mind shift where, um, so like, yes, I have all these privileges and this sucks, <laughs> you know, yeah. like those are, and just cause the one doesn't, doesn't invalidate the other. And, uh, has this thing she would say like from social, for like when she was back from well, I don't even know where it came from, but she's like the regardless of like the worst thing to happen to you is still the worst thing to happen to you, and it's not the like oppression Olympics of like this person had something worse happen. Right. I don't know. It's just like th- 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 things are hard for you; they're hard for you, <laughs> you know. And that's a weird thing to. Yeah, I mean, we are guys that are inherently privileged in a lot of ways. So it's like, especially yeah. nowadays, it feels like you shouldn't complain and obviously nobody likes a complainer anyway etc cetera, etc cetera. but that doesn't negate the fact that like we're drowning too <laughs> yeah. yeah it doesn't mean that every time i make the mistake of opening up social media or or god forbid any sort of cable news that i immediately want to just erupt into an ex- fireball of frustration and i can't watch it anymore anger and destruction and and, and it's like, how do you stay engaged? And I want to be a part of the solution and I want to help. And I, you know, you know, like the last election tried to engage and it just had a, just a tremendous toll on me Yeah, because you want to be part of the solution. You want to help. You don't, I don't want to be a, like life is shit. Or like this is shit is fine when it's a legitimate concern, but like Dave right. said, and you know, Palmer of course said in the, in the previous podcast that was on that, you know, you have to move through it. And, and keep going and, and right. find solutions. But, you know, it's hard when it feels like any solution you find is completely overwhelmed by the next wave of just total ridiculousness. I <laughs> so. hate it. It's, <laughs> so, it's so triage. It's like, like, yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, you're putting band-aids on bullet wounds. Yeah. I feel like sometimes. And so. uh, 
but it's still a band-aid i guess yeah um anyway palmer how are you how are you coming to this thing <laughs> oh shit uh you know same yeah uh just trying to i'm really coming to terms with a few things about my job which i know i've said before i, th- I think all of us that i ironically have said before that uh you know, I'm just coming to this certain level of acceptance with my job and my role. And, uh, that is kind of liberating and, um, starting to really, I've had like 17 people tell me like, you're just too hard on yourself and you have to give this time and et cetera, et cetera. And that I think is finally starting to come to fruition. Like I'm starting to see some of the, the, that progress happening. So that's good, I guess. Um, Ash and I are doing great. <clears throat> we, uh, the dogs are awesome. We're di- we're still down to just the pinball hauler for a vehicle right now. Her <laughs> car is still in the shop. So uh, we actually have decided to. Part of our concern is that, like, we're still up in the air on deciding. I should say, but we're weighing the option of. Um, just throwing everything we can at like a, a, a new car and then trying to just finance as little as possible on that new car. So uh, just because my concern is that her car is never going to be the same. It had a U-Haul up on top of it. <laughs> they're, they're de- yeah. They decided to fix it. So Oh, um, they did? Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, I guess well, every market's inflated right now, right? And that even especially so in the used car market. And so, uh, they when we went to the shop, they said we have a 2004 Rav Four that has eighty five hundred dollars worth of damage. Like it's like a thirty five hundred dollar beater car, you know. And he's like, they are fixing that vehicle because the value of it is so high that it still is fixable to them yeah um he's like well you know they're we're gonna look for other stuff that's wrong but the chances of it getting told or totaled are really slim so and he just texted yesterday and said it was moving to paint so they must have gotten something repaired on it already so we're just really concerned about um I need to make sure that she can get to Pennsylvania when she drives by herself or if I take it. The one rule is like, I need to be able to put a pinball machine in it. So that kind of narrows it down to what vehicles we could consider. Um, But one of those is kind of like a bucket list vehicle for both of us. So uh, we're thinking about going that option. So if we do that, then that confidence will kind of be restored. But then at the flip side, I don't know if I want to, wait until we move out of this place so then that way you know if god for i wouldn't want it to, this to all happen again with another new car that's where we are yeah sure that makes sense what's the bucket list vi- vehicle what's oh it? no uh I, you know speaking of privilege i mean it's like we go from that like recognizing our privilege to going to like these cars that we want to get uh a jeep wrangler is what uh one thing that we've we just like the 
convertibility of it of driving around without a top on so uh, and I, uh, you can get actually i saw a photo where somebody had two pinball machines in one of those which was pretty impressive oh wow so, nice do you still have the mustache on on the pinball hauler that's why I laugh yeah, and you're like, yeah. we're driving that around. I was like, I love this idea. <laughs> yeah, it, it's still on there, but it actually uh, got sun bleached and well uh, and dried out and it separated from the adhesive layer. So uh, I it's I need to take it all the way off and then uh, maybe get another one. But like I said, we're gonna throw we're gonna try to throw as much as we can at it. That's paid off too. It doesn't like I never owed anything on that. So. Uh, we were thinking of throwing that, her car, and then uh, I was going to sell a pinball machine to throw that money at it as well. I'm trying to think what else we got. Nothing really. Just like staying inside, trying to be responsible, living, <laughs> living the quarantine life again, I feel <laughs> like. this. Oh. Uh, so, but yeah. You sound sad, you? dude. <laughs> oh no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, You're allowed to be sad. What's going on? Me? Oh, uh, oh gosh. Uh, I don't even know. Um, my work stuff. Like, remember the email I didn't send? Um, so I, did, yeah. I never did send it. But there have been some of those same problems. I have had chances to communicate some of those ideas, and was invited, in fact, to kind of send. I sent a version of it and we had a long meeting this morning with like basically my supervisor, supervisor about all this. And it's still like a fucked situation, but it, uh, I feel like I feel as good about it as I can given the particulars of everything. So that's kind of nice. It hasn't completely sunken in because of the way the rest of the day has gone, but I guess that's good. Um, I'm kind of producing, Jesus, like a, it's, it's like, I'm, it's like producing the Grammys or something. It's crazy. I can't even like, it's exciting, but it's different. But that's been a lot. <laughs> We've been filming a bunch yesterday. I don't know. There's a lot going on, but, uh, most, most of it, like at least relatively good. <laughs> yeah. I'll go with that. <clears throat> all right. All right. That's fair. Man, we all sound a little just like fucking bleak, and we're going to talk about fucking bleak movies. <laughs> yeah. That just, like, I'll <laughs> say, though, if you're going to watch Blade Runner, you kind of want to be. It's that kind this of. This is like, a good mood for it. Like, yeah. Because if really you go is. in and you're looking for a popcorn movie, you're looking for, you know, uh, yeah. sorry, I forgot the name, like the zombie movie that you guys had oh, talked yeah. about. Oh yeah, Army of the Net. Dead. Yeah. Army of the Dead. Yeah. If you're looking for something like that, you are not going to find it here. No. So you no. You are in for two hours of not that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Or more with the 2049 yeah. is longer yeah. than that, right? Yeah. Two and a half oh, or something. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. 2049 is so. like almost three hours. That's a solid, solid movie. Yeah, that's. Yeah. Um, it is a solid movie, though, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no. It, it, yeah, but both men, I guess, like, figuratively and literally, right? Uh, yeah, it's substantive yeah. in more ways than one. <laughs> it's a so meal. Before we, before we jump into Blade Runner, I, I need it. I got to come clean on something, Palmer. What's that? So I started watching 
a documentary that came out in 2015 called The Lost Soul. Are you familiar with yeah. this at all? No. Is is this the Island of Dr. Moreau thing? Oh, I'm so excited. Oh, I want to see this. So it's I only so, like I only could find it on Voodoo for free. So I'm watching it there, yeah. which is kind of awkward because I I downloaded an app from my iPad. So I couldn't yeah, get on my don't TV. They have like anyway, tons of ads. Like the, these the, every few minutes you have to yeah. sit through this weird yeah, yeah. barrage then, of loud ads. And then Amazon Prime just put out a documentary called Val. <laughs> which is, I know is <laughs> I can't. I can't. I feel awful. I felt awful since I watched the trailer. Terrible. Like, terrible, awful. I'm, I already knew I was going to hell. I'm going to pay that off, too. All I just those feel times. Like, I feel like I need to come clean about the fact that I put this on my watch list and I'm probably even going to watch it tonight is my like, only chance here in the next couple of days. But I just, it's kind of like, I don't know. It's like getting caught watching porn by your parents or something. <laughs> if I were to watch but this so and not awful. tell you about it, because this, the weight of carrying that knowledge around that you would know that I've been yeah. watching it. It feels like a betrayal to you. It does. <laughs> I do. I feel like I, if, yeah. if I hadn't told you, you would know. And that's why you guys wouldn't be like inviting me back on the podcast, <laughs> even though it was just like scheduling you know what i mean it would but feel like <laughs> he watched he watched val so he can no longer participate in lock short drink so no 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 you're more than welcome i'm actually going to watch the val documentary so you watch the island of dr moreau documentary right so i'm about halfway through it okay it is uh, absolutely is, is it a- it's worth your i mean so i mean th- this is coming though from a guy who just read a book that's like a million pages on the making of Blade Runner. So obviously, oh, like, awesome. There's a you, certain that's awesome. There's a certain number of there's a certain amount of like whenever I hear there's an interesting story behind something being made, and and in this case, movies. But you know, anything. My cat is eating my headphones. Um, <laughs> it interests me for sure, especially a movie like that, which is just widely panned by audiences, critics, the direct, the first director, mm-hmm. uh, the, the actors. <laughs> I mean, like everybody was like, this thing is a steaming pile of garbage. And then you get a chance to, to hear people talk about it and share honest feedback, you know, 20 years, or I guess not quite, it was made in 2015. So not quite 20 years after it came out. Oh. But anyway, there's an interesting kind of a side of, the Val Kilmer that's about to come into my life, um, <laughs> which I was not expecting. Has he shown up in the documentary yet? Have no. you seen? Oh, okay. I don't even know if he's in it. I guess I, I haven't maybe got that far yet. But. I, I haven't seen it, but Palmer, you saw it years ago, right? And then that really yeah, informed yeah, some of your opinion really, of him, right? Well, so I, first off, it is common knowledge that he is was a tyrant on the set of his films that he had he like a lot of actors brought a lot of ego to the set that i i'm not trying to speak with hyperbole on that i think that is just 
that can I've heard that from on multiple behind the things seen things. I, I think he even and, comes clean about that, at least in interviews I've read. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and this, yes, this particular documentary does not shy from painting him as one of the many villains that are against this poor man trying to make his dream film. Uh, and so, yeah, you're, that's so funny. Cause you are like, like halfway, I forgot how long they spend just painting the picture of yeah. how much of a passion project this is for this man. Like that, how much pre production work he did be, like before he went to set, um, to do this and just how it, it it started to show some signs even then, even early on. Then has he met Marlon Brando yet? No. Has he gone to? Oh yeah. I'm probably closer so, to like a third, a third of the way, yeah. I guess. If I'm. Yeah, it, I meant it, to look uh, it up. Oh shit! That's a, like that. We might have to have you on again. Uh, yeah, I would. I want to see that movie, and I want to. I love stories yeah. like this in general, so I'm so excited that you tweak are like we interested in it from this angle and the Val documentary like we could talk oh, both of them man. Like, yeah uh <laughs> well, so the and then it's just i happened to you know what's so funny is that all started like a lot of gags i feel like on shows like this where i somewhere in the like days leading up to recording that first time it came up i saw some photo of val kilmer and he looks like he does it, it currently in the trailer of that documentary with the neck scarf and very, he, he looks like he has had a rough go of it. Correct. I, yeah. The last, know, the and, last decade or so has not been kind. Yeah. Per his and, health. Yeah. And my ignorance and my like assumptions of Hollywood elite is, was like, well, live hard, like, it's going to show right. And you're going to play hard. It, it just like, that's what happens. And I made that one joke, how he looked like, uh, Nick Nolte's mugshot. Mugshot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it just became a running gag. It was a running gag. Of course. It was a bit. Uh, yeah. Yeah. For our entertainment. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez, I feel like shit. Because then this documentary comes out. And I had no idea about the throat cancer or any of that hardship and the struggles that he's going through. And the I'm sure the bravery that it took to make this documentary that's coming out. So I am interested in seeing it. Um, and yes, he, did, he has in multiple interviews acknowledged that he was kind of a tyrant. Yeah. Although sometimes he's not. If it, some of those though, they're not necessarily apologies for it though. Yeah. No. Just acknowledging. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He acknowledges it, but it's not necessarily an apology for it. You know. At least in the uh, ones I read. So, I mean, but to to be fair, he was coming from a place where, you know, when your hero is Marlon Brando, Marlon Brando wasn't exactly uh, uh, the most generous onset personality. You know. So no. Just in the fact, no. I mean who your heroes are aren't necessarily you, but they can influence. I mean, they can at least paint a little bit of a picture about, you know, I don't know. 
And you look at his resume, though, through the 80s and the 90s, and he was in some pretty stellar stuff. Yeah. You know, and so it's not like it came with, like, false hubris, right? Like, it, it, it is... It came from some legitimate place where he had a lot under his belt. And so, um, yeah, I think that that I, I think that's also too part of where they like his his association with that Island of Dr. Moreau project. Like, I don't know if it like straddled where at one, you know, when he first got involved with it, he somehow he's not happy that he has to do this movie and uh at that point just decides that he wants to sabotage it from every corner and uh it is it it is devastating and that's why they spend so long ensuring you know how much of a passion project for this director it was um, you know, guys know Ron Perlman. You can picture that actor. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Ron Perlman absolutely. is in this in this movie, and I guess Palmer, you'll remember because I don't want to give the whole thing away. But he had a heartbreaking experience. It does. It has a good ending, kind of, on that movie as well with Marlon Brando, and he tells a great story about. It. I think it's in. He's got a book out that, uh, like a biography that there's a chapter in it. But I heard him talk about it on a podcast. I'll have to find it. It's a great little story though, with a nice sort of payoff kind of happy ending ish but man there was a lot of drama on that set <laughs> oh just, yeah uh, nobody was happy with anybody else on that set uh well I, i'm intrigued by all this and i do want to follow up because i i've been making note to watch that movie i don't know how many times and even again recently i made note and even made note like okay it's on voodoo now instead of netflix where it was forever i was like okay well i'm <laughs> not trying to talk you into anything but right now the Island of Dr. Moreau is only $1.99 to rent if you do want to rent it. I got the DVD. I've had that oh. for even longer. I've had that so many years. And, oh, that's uh, fantastic. Or, even before I knew it was a train wreck of, of a behind-the-scenes story, I was just interested yeah. in it as a modern retelling of one of those old Universal movies. Or as we speak right now, I could just buy it because it's only $4.99. Don't ask why. why? Just, just buy. buy. <laughs> I'm pressing the button. Oh, I'm Hang on. Here it is. I now own Island of Dr. Moreau. All right. All right. I like where this is all yeah, headed. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm totally down for, well, I'll have to, the, the next at least like two weeks, maybe four, I will uh, binge all this Island Dr. Moreau shit. So, Voodoo, <laughs> uh, uh, so what's the place that has a documentary? Uh, I'm watching on Voodoo just because it's free. I'm sure you can. Voodoo, yeah, yeah, okay. Watch it on uh, any number. You, I mean, I, it's it's with commercials, so that's kind of yeah, annoying. Yeah, you but... can probably rent it on Amazon Prime too. Yeah, um, I was gonna, I was actually gonna search it right now. Not that... what's the name of it again? Let me write Lost, that down. Lost Souls, something, something, something. Yeah, like a colon. Yeah. Lost Souls, the fucked up story behind the yeah, a true story. Did they talk find. about the um the what was I think Island of Lost Souls? Yeah, Island of Lost Souls was the first film, and maybe it wasn't a Universal one, but uh, it's a it Criterion has, Collection movie. Yeah, and it has Bela Lugosi in it as like the leader of the animal people, and this really yeah. intense, like great. Um, I think it's even where the name Devo comes from for that band, but he gives this. Huh. Uh, impassioned thing. He kind of looks like a wolfman, but he comes out and he's like, "You made us in the house of pain." 
Not men! Not beasts! Bird men! Bird beast! This is like crazy. You know, Bella Lugosi I've is... I've seen that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. No, it's fan. I've seen that. I haven't seen that in ages, but I see that clip a lot. Yeah, the clip. That's and, right. uh, I might want to start with that. Man, it's a whole odyssey. <laughs> I'm excited. Uh, I'm glad you're into this, yeah. Twinkie. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks yeah, for bringing well, I mean, this up. To, to some degree, I have a lot. I have, I'm fond, I have fond memories of of uh, you know Val Kilmer. Of course, his role in Tombstone is is well regarded. Um, I've watched Tombstone probably more times than I can say. Not not recently, but I just remember really liking it after it first came out. And then he was in um, a couple remakes of some older. Uh, I can't think of the name of it right now, but you know, kind of a plays a detective, and I don't know. Just I, I have I have fond, generally fond memories of Val Kilmer, and that, he, that, he, yeah, he was a good his actor. Work is good, yeah, yeah, his work is good, and he's it, in good films, right? Uh, it just unfortunate, and obviously his role is Jim Morrison. You know, there, there's a but, shout out to pure genius. Yeah, genius. real genius. Yeah, that's real, see, real I, genius. Yeah, I, sorry. I think I most readily think of him as Iceman from Top sure. Gun, in which he's a dick. <laughs> and so, so yeah. I'd have that kind of in the back of my mind. But one of the bride's most favorite movies is Real Genius. She quotes it all the time. We've got it on VHS, and he is so charming in that. He's got no sideburns whatsoever, like anti sideburns. But like they have in Blade Runner, that was something I noticed. There in in the first Blade Runner, everybody's sideburns start up like way up yeah. here. It's very oh, weird. wow. He had that going on a real genius. It was, it was called uh, the Saint, which is like a oh, remake. Oh yeah, of like with a, Elizabeth Shue, I think. Yeah, yeah. it's a remake yeah. of an old like '50s serial radio show. But you know, I just remember okay. him fondly, and you know, in that playing these characters, and I don't know. Yeah, just, he was a good-looking guy. Obviously. Oh yeah, Top he's secret. Oh, I, that's a bananas it, movie. I saw that in the last it, few years. It's a Zucker Brothers movie. They don't make comedies like that anymore. No, like it just, uh, it's like a like a Naked Gun, or it's like that style of of comedy. And but with, told with this, uh, yeah, no, it's, he's like a singer a, in that, right? Doesn't he like sing like Elvis? Yeah, but he's a secret agent so, or something. <laughs> yeah, well, they recruit him to be a secret agent to go over because he's. He's like the first American performer to be asked to perform over in in West Germany. Mm-hmm. And so they ask him to help infiltrate the freedom fighters that are over there. And uh, man, is that a great movie? It's it just is you're right, screwball comedy. It's just like it's like so off the wall, like Kentucky Fried movie or any of the naked gun movies, or um, it's just kind of it's just these like non sequitur jokes yeah. one right after the other that just like sight gags and pratfalls and sound effects jokes and all these things all tied together just like like if a 13 year old boy was talented enough to actually make a, yeah. a motion picture that's what it's like like yeah. austin powers you know that kind of yeah like, just airplane airplane's another great yeah ex- like falls into that category right uh, of comedy so um yeah top secret man top secret real genius top gun uh the saint tombstone i mean just listen to that it's like uh eh, you gotta bring it up now let me ghost in the darkness i've on imdb i don't really remember all these but ghost i remember oh, yeah. that video box. An interesting movie and oh you saw it yeah you saw that one? one yeah with that michael yeah. douglas yeah making that up yeah yeah 
So yeah. Oh, anyway, like theater saw that you mean like went to Fairlawn or something? And yeah. Saw yeah. Oh wow. Maybe went to Worcester. I always went to Worcester for whatever reason. Big multiplex there on the. Oh, I remember it well. North, yeah, five the, bucks. Yeah, the north side. Val Kilmer. Ho- hopefully, <laughs> you know, I, I'm. But everybody I've, who I've seen, they, they nobody has spoiled the documentary yet, but just said that it's sad. So like, prepare for sad. And it's like, well, I don't know. Uh, I don't want it. sad, but I guess here we go. So, <laughs> no, that's a hard sell. He's yeah, <laughs> there's got to be a little bit of a triumph in it, or there seems like he's got a resilient spirit about him right now. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully that's the case, but. Batman Forever, Island Doctor Moreau. Oh, Batman! Oh my God! Yeah, I totally he was a good forgot. Batman. I, I mean, totally forgot about the best, sight. but he was in that with Elizabeth Shue too at first sight. Oh, is, or is that Mira Servino? I think that's Mira Servino. If I'm getting remembering correctly, it could be no. Mis- Elizabeth Shue is in the Saint, and then let me look at at first sight. I can't. He's blind at in first the, sight is Mira Servino. Yeah, I had it backwards. That's a weird period where I know up until a certain yeah. point with movies, I know everything based on video boxes, whether I saw them or not. And oh uh, wow, okay. I never saw that or Ghost in the Darkness, but I can picture their video boxes so clearly. Ghost in the Darkness was red, all red. The out of sight, right. uh, not out of sight. Bang bang. That How I saw once and loved. I, I've always yeah. wanted to rewatch that because it's written by Shane Black and came out in like 2007 with Robert Downey Jr. Yep. Uh, 2007 might be wrong, but it's like uh, it's like the lethal and weapon Val, dynamic, but with those two yeah, guys. And Val, yep, and Val Kilmer like is able to keep up with the fast pace of Robert Downey Jr. Uh, one of my best burns in the entire. In, in the entire world is in that movie and Val Kilmer delivers it where he's talking to um, I probably with I think this has come up before already and I probably said the same thing but like he looks at um, at Robert Downey Jr. and says do you know what would happen if you looked up stupid in the dictionary and he's like see a picture of me and he's like no the definition of stupid you fucking idiot like <laughs> <laughs> I want to watch all of these uh, movies. I love Val yeah. Kilmer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I take everything I said back. I think you're doing real good here today, Twinkie. Uh, yeah. Well, you what know, it's, it's like anything else. It is nice though to look back at you know because there's some actors and I you know without digging into a whole different topics. Some like Kevin Spacey, who I loved for years and would watch every, I mean, I would watch anything he was in just because, you know, and then it turns out he's a fucking absolute piece of shit human being um, on a variety of levels um, far beyond just being a diva on set. And so, you know, when you find that about Val Kilmer, you're like, well, you know, I mean, yeah. Should he have been a better person? Yes. Like, did he probably, ruin some people's careers like yeah we don't overlook of course you don't want to overlook terrible things that people do but at least to some degree you can look back and be like okay all right there's some there's some you know there's some joy here there's some delight and fun and whatever you know absolutely at least and i'm gonna like like, i'm gonna i'm gonna end my my one-sided feud with Val Kilmer. <laughs> I'll say it officially. I am the one-sided. I, my, 
My feud is over <laughs> with Val Kilmer. Um, may you, mm. I wish you nothing but the best. Yeah. Val. Let's we'll we'll find someone that. else. Let's find someone else. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. I'm just going to say Nick Nolte looks like Nick Nolte. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> you seen that guy recently? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, uh, oh that's, that's my Nick Nolte. <laughs> it sounds like a tiger. Oh, that is that's exactly what he sounds like. Oh, man. I can't remember who it was. Yeah. I heard uh, imitate him on a podcast that was so spot on. Like, yeah, he is a he's a how is he man. still alive? Like you know those people you're like yeah. anybody he's probably in younger the rolling, than he looks. <laughs> yeah. Anybody in the Rolling Stones, like how are they all alive? Yeah. Talk about lived hard. Yeah. Anyway. That's my sidebar. Yeah, that was a great sidebar. But I want to honor this enormous book that you've read and uh oh, yeah. get into the, the blade runner of it all. I've wanna say no, this wasn't in your initial list of things that maybe like years ago twinkie when we first sort of reconnected through the podcast and we were talking about having you on more in the future you're like there's or even before i think you came on we're like these are things i'd love to talk about it's like women in film certain things we've gotten to or the professional was blade blade runner wasn't out yet right so maybe it wouldn't have been on that list the the 2049 right i don't think so i i definitely know though it might even be the book that we're that you're about to talk about that something did bring it up one of the times you were on the podcast because I definitely knew like when I got 2049 I bought it on Blu-ray and I remember texting you and I got the idea of like you should just get that because it's going to be gorgeous and you're going to like it as a film no matter what uh, and I got most of that uh, insp- inspired by you talking about it on here on here so i know it definitely has come up somewhere in all of those times that you've been on yeah and i you know blade runner is probably not something that i like it grew on me i remember watching it the first time and like a lot of people who watched it for the first time in the theater they you know they were expecting harrison ford of star wars um and they were expecting that sort of that sort of movie and you know they they got they got aliens you know ridley scott and kind of a noir film and it was challenging to a lot of people and the movie obviously did not do well um in the book they talk about how they were wrestling with when to release it because there was a small movie coming out a kid's movie that was coming out that same summer and they're like well we'll release it like four weeks after et because (laughs) et will be done by then and they got their lunch eaten et smoked them for the entire summer um and they completely underestimated spielberg and his little kid movie um and so you know they talk about how they definitely tried to make it a summer movie and sold it as a summer movie and it's not a it's not a traditional summer movie, right? It's just not going to yeah. it's not gonna be that. Ridley Scott never made it that way from the beginning. The book the book I've read um twice and it's a tough read. The Do Androids Dream yeah. of Electric Sheep. It's right. but Philip K. Dick, right? So mm-hmm. somehow I know both yep. of those things, but I've never ever yeah. read it. 
it's a very challenging read. I find a lot of his stuff really challenging to read. It, it Just his is. Prose. I would recommend. Yeah, I, I would really recommend uh, li- trying to find some of his stuff on audio because I find that it's a little easier to consume because then that cadence that you're talking about that author, the narrator gives it to you. So then it's just like, it works for me when I listen to it. I actually did not. uh, That was so long ago. I could not tell you much about it, but I know I did listen to it. Um, Yeah. Well, I, I mean, a lot of his stuff has been made, you know, obviously been made into movies with, a scanner darkly and minority report and yep. the adjustment bureau. And, you know, he, he, I think he's like the most adapted sci-fi author. Like I, I could definitely Hollywood film, like see that, you know, and to varying levels of success, but you know, certainly he's visionary in a lot of ways. Yep. Um, kind of seeing the future probably before it really was there. I mean, he used a lot of LSD and, so on so um that you helps. also believe we were living in a simulation there's a really yeah uh viral video where he holds a press conference to announce that we are living in a simulation so oh recently this would have been or or a long uh, time ago i i'm I, I think in the 70s oh wow or eight or 80s i'll have to I'll have to see if I can dredge that up, and I I will share that with you too. It's very interesting to listen to for sure, but I don't know if it's like on a press junket for a book, or or what, or if, oh, mm-hmm. love you too, honey, or if uh, you're, it's a panel or something. But he takes that opportunity to like have this long, like here's my hypothesis. This is why I think I'm right. None of us are actually here. We're all in a simulation. It's interesting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, when you, it's interesting because there's like um, authors that are kind of, you know, I don't know, that, that like William Gibson, right, who's kind of the somewhat founder of the cyberpunk genre, talks about how he, when he saw Blade Runner, he, he just said, I, how, how could they, how did they see into my brain and understand about the book that I just wrote? Cause he had written his kind of magnum opus, um, ne- uh, necromancer. It's, uh, it's, it's a play on that. Something like that. I can't, I'm, the word I'm losing it right now. But anyway, he, he had written it while before that movie came out, but it was released after Blade Runner. Oh he, yeah. Remember him saying in an interview, like uh, people are going to think that, I saw a Blade Runner runner and then wrote this book because of the themes kind of this er, this uh, urbanism and um, how technology and humanity, the lines are blurred, just a lot of stuff like that. You know, Neuromancer. Yep. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. Neuromancer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, so and, and, and reading this, book future noir people talk about it like either i didn't like it when it came out but it grew on me and obviously there's been like five different editions of the movie that ridley has tried to do to quote unquote make it his vision um and you know i don't know how much that really helps it i've watched the final cut in preparation for this and i've watched the original cut a couple times and you know 
you can kind of get lost in the minutia with some of that if but to just enjoy the movie as it was made and just how it feels right this noir this noir setting in the future is so interesting and a, a great yeah. approach yeah i like that uh, yeah. there's uh, the big thing about the voiceover um but just from a really base level just is it fun is it enjoyable blah 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 it's uh uh it, it plays up the sort of um, he's like a noir. It's like it's so it's a neo noir. It's like a modern noir, and so it harkens back to the like Raymond Chandler type stuff with like Humphrey Bogart talking about you know narrating it in the same way that Harrison Ford does. So I I sort of liked that. I rewatched the trailer for because uh, I didn't get all the way through the first Blade Runner. I started to rewatch it recently in the last few days and kind of only made it halfway through. So like, Oh, I'll refresh my memory some today by watching the trailer. And I found like a three minute trailer that was from the time. And it's kind of narrated in that way by the trailer itself by Harrison Ford. Only I didn't even recognize his voice because it's like, it was not quite as deep as it used to be. It was only like halfway through that trailer. I was like, Oh, this is Harrison Ford doing the narration thing. I think it was specific to the trailer. Like not, it's been a long time since I saw that version of the movie. Anyway, I liked that. There's a lot to explain to get you into the world. And so my memory of it was, it was very functional, but also kind of contributed to that vibe of him being a detective, you know, and help orienting you to the kind of story you were watching in the, I don't know. I, I like that. And so I've seen, I think I've seen a few versions over the years. I don't remember the, definite distinctions i know the ending is a big part of it in the voiceover but they all work to me do you have a favorite of of the versions twinkie or are Um, you not i I, you know i guess i just i lean to the final cut only because you know ridley has just talked about how you know he was able to kind of go in and do some of the stuff that he wanted to do i don't have a strong opinion i mean some people just absolutely hate the voiceover I don't like, like with you, like I understand its impact. I know Harrison Ford doesn't like it, not because he doesn't like the voiceover, but because they basically, you know, told him he had to go do it when he hadn't signed anything to do it or was told he wasn't going to have to do it. And so it's more just kind of Harrison Ford, kind of Harrison Fording it a little bit, just being kind of grumpy that, you know, yeah, it didn't fit his vision, you know? And I mean, not like any other movie, I'm sure. I've never been on a movie set, but especially when you have someone like Ridley Scott who had come off a lot of success. He's used to filming fast in the in the industry of commercials. Um, and now he's given this amazing backlot set and they're up against, oh, I think it was an actor's strike or a writer's strike or something as they're trying to get everything done and there was a, some sort of strike that was coming up at, towards the end of the filming. And then he kind of made some mistakes where he talked to a newspaper, I think in the, his, his, you know, in the UK where he's from and said he preferred UK crews yeah. to us crews. Well, of course this isn't social media, but somebody got their hands on a copy of the paper and spread that around. And I think they call it, they end up calling it what like blood runner or something because of like how, intense he was um yeah because he's really exacting as i understood it like and he can kind of do anyone's job like that was the other thing i was getting he was like he could do anybody's job in that crew and because of that running the camera right because right yeah as a director in the uk 
you don't have a, a cinematographer necessarily at that time. You were, right. you were everything, especially at his level when he's doing all these commercials. And so now he's got a cinematographer who just did a fucking incredible job, but you know, he's just not used to that. Not, not, com- he's not used to communicating through those different lines of communication of, you know, letting things trickle down through their, through the ranks and letting things work back up. Right. He's like, I, we got to do this. We got to get it done. And they're filming at night in the rain and smoke. And, you know, just after six weeks of that, I think people were just over it. The actors are yeah. over it. The crew's over it. Scott's over it. I think it. too. Cause he's just so new. I like, I'm sure all of us have had times where we have a vision in our head that we have to try to communicate to some other person or group of people to help achieve that vision. And it, that can be super challenging to like paint that picture in your head. And I, I know he is a visionary person and, and I'll cite the, the like six hour long documentary that's with Prometheus. Um, and there's a scene where, one of the other, they're talking about him doing his storyboards and he'd be like, it's not him that says this. It's somebody that was working with him on the storyboards and they'd go, get me my small pen. And he would like to just try to express the scale. He'd draw a little tiny stick figure in this frame that would have like a landscape in it, but he would draw this little stick figure to show like, that's how much, how big this needs to look. If there was a person, that's how small they would be. And I'm all of that to say with all of these new things and how horrendous it was, like the amount of scale he's able to communicate on that frame is astounding. And I think like not until the final cut where they went in and did some work on Joanna Cassidy's Zora character, where they, they put her face on the stunt woman when she's going through the glass. Oh. So if you watch the original one, it is like definitely not her. Like it's yeah. Like yeah. a shot of her face. Like you could tell it's not her. And so in the final cut, they go do some, but there's no CGI in the original. Right. It's no. all like optical no. and matte paintings. And, and they, like they go into it in yep. this, in this, and then in some of the commentaries they, you know, if you've listened to those, like, I mean, just the, pure amount of frantic work every single day to make a movie come together like that. I don't know why anybody wants to make movies. Like you've really got to yeah. be passionate. And I know it's the same today. It's just, you know, it's just in a different way and it makes me appreciate it more, I guess is what I'm trying to say is because I like movies. I love movies, but I would never want to make one. Yeah. I love video games and it's the same thing. It's soul crushing, grinding March to death. <laughs> <laughs> on some of those projects, you know, and you're just like, yeah, I'm glad somebody's passionate. Do about you think it. that's just like where he was in his career though? I mean, he had alien under his belt. Like his sets aren't like that now. Yeah. Yeah. Like he kind of like plays by his own tune now. Right. Like, because he's earned that, but you're, sure. but I think to get to that point, you're right. Like it is like, it takes 150% passion. You know, yeah. like, well, you know, and, you know, just dealing with personalities on the set, you know, you have really well-known people. I mean, Daryl Hannah, of course, was a big name at the time. Sean Young had made a name for herself coming into this. And of course, Harrison was, I mean, 
they, they joke in one of the, one of the things about how, how uh, it's almost funny to watch Harrison Ford in this now because Harrison Ford cost as much as this movie was to make, you know, to, to get Harrison Ford <laughs> as an actor on a movie nowadays would just be, I mean, he's yeah. probably not commanding of course what he used to, but at his height, you know, he was 20 million a picture probably, you know, sure. back in the, sure. back in that. But, and I, I mean, so there's so many different ways to go. I, I talk about any angle of it that you guys are interested in, but like the, the person that I love watching in this movie the most is definitely Rutger Hauer. Yeah. His, his, um, ah, just incredible. Just incredible. I mean, the, the heart and soul that he gives to a machine, frankly. Um, and it, like, I don't know the scene with, with uh, Joe Turkle's character, you know, Eldon Tyrell. And uh, I, there's just, it, I can go on yeah. and on about all of the things that I, I love. And, and it's interesting hearing about, so for example, in the scene where um, Roy Beatty meets Eldon Terrell, they were going to have that scene be, you find out that that's not actually Eldon Terrell, that's another bot. And they go into this like cryogenic freeze area, you know, another set. And Eldon Terrell is just like frozen. And he's going to be resurrected when the technology catches up or a certain time, I forget, but they ran out of money. And so they're like, nope, you're Eldon Terrell now. And uh, <laughs> just reshot it or re-edited it to where, you know, that's clear to the audience. And that's, that, that's in uh, future noir. Yeah, no, that, that, uh, that scene is so powerful and just, um, yeah, I, uh, really think that Rucker Hauer carries that movie in my opinion it just is a stellar performance from him um I think that one thing that it was in prep for this show actually that I really I that I realized about these films is like because you call them bots and I always got hung up on two uh the the book is called do Android sleep or dream of electric sheep jeez and uh i always pictured like the terminator right but they're not it's not that they are indistinguishable from human beings really you have to get down to that and that's the point of like uh in the second one you know they're like zooming in on a bone and there's a serial number buried deep 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 down microscopically on that bone but I know I didn't catch a lot of the stuff, you know, I remember watching it the first time and being confused a little bit or, you know, it's obviously a very dark movie. Yeah. I don't think it was the first time I saw breasts in a movie, but it was probably like one of the first time I saw breasts in a movie. Nice. Uh, and they were with, bejeweled then, right? Yeah. they were bejeweled. <laughs> with, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Even more delightful than they already are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, but, but so I just remember like, a scatter shot of things but then of course like it's just one of those movies you can watch again and and then like oh yeah they only have a four-year lifespan and yeah what yep. it, what about if you found out what if you knew right now you know that your life was going to end in two years not just you know you're actually a human being and you just found out your life is going to end in two years like that would completely change how you lived your life yeah complete i mean it would change how i live my life 
So let yep. alone if you then find out that and the fact that you're not a human, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and I just feel like when I know it at, and I watch the movie, then at that, level, that level, I find those performances by Howard and Brian James and Joanna Cassidy, you know, some of those other characters to be even better and really add to the, the landscape and the urban district, you know, just yeah. mega, mega city feeling. And then of course, 2049 throws in all this extensive climate change, you know, just yep. pile on the pain. <laughs> it's all shit. It's all shit. <laughs> Of course, you saw the, the Coke billboard, right? The Coke billboard? Yeah. That was oh, yeah. amazing. I just thought it was, you know, a very excellent movie. And of course, you saw Coke. There was a Coke billboard. I spotted that. Really? In the movie. <laughs> I yeah. can't see that. Above the drugstore. It, that was amazing. So, Coke has been and always will be a part of everyone's life. <laughs> the Coke billboard was amazing. <laughs> that's, that's great. You can't get much better. Coke will always be there. All right. Enough about the Coke. Um... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> sorry. That's a callback to Palmer's picks. <laughs> yeah. Let, let me ask a question that I think really it helps illustrate where like your response I feel like to the to the series is Deckard a replicant or not. Yeah, so to to everybody else who will end up listening to this, this is obviously the question. And um, the ongoing joke to the, this question is that when Ridley Scott visited the 2049 set in where it was, it was filming in Eastern Europe somewhere. I kind of forget where, but of course the 2049 is by one of my favorite directors, uh, Denis Villeneuve, who's doing Dune coming up, but a great cast all around. That's a whole nother, you know, it's just, just a great movie. But when, when Ridley Scott shows up, him and him and Harrison Ford get right into it just get about right whether into or not, it about yeah. whether he's a replicant or not. Harrison's trying to convince him that he's not. And Ridley is a hundred percent convincing him that he is. And, you know, it's been 20, 30 years since they've done this and they just go right at each other in, in, I, you know, intense, but I think obviously they're, they're having fun with each other to some degree. Um, sure. And so I like the fact that, you know, the film does just enough because because Ridley Scott is on record saying that he wants Deckard to be a replicant. And that's why he films for the the other movies, the the scene with the unicorn. So that right. when when uh, uh, whatever Edward James Almost's yeah. character's I, name, I forgot right now. But I um, don't remember the name either. He leaves him the the little unicorn. You know, you you have to ask the question, well, how does he know that? Harrison Ford daydreams yeah. of unicorns. Rick Deckard yeah. has these dreams about unicorns. Unless they were implanted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so ask that question. And and this I in my research for this, this is it took up till my research for this to really understand the small like that this this is a very minute nuance yeah. that has gigantic implications. Because so the replicants that the whole move, like the the MacGuffins that are being pursued through the movie, uh, 
are a certain type of replicant that will die after four years because they have no emotion or, or no, they're only for what their purpose is. And because of that, they are driven by their emotions. And that's the, the test that they take is specifically designed to make them have an outburst. And so the theory is that Tyrell broke, his breakthrough was if I implant memories and give them a pass, that's what, that's what makes them a civilized version of, of, of a replicant that is in control of its emotions and able to, well, in his opinion, pass that same assessment. But even, Which is exemplified by Rachel in, in, yes, in the, the original exactly. Blade Runner, who is this kind of next generation replicant and has no idea she is a replicant no. until he tells her that his memories yeah he tells her his, yeah. her memories tells rachel her memories decker does yeah yeah and so that kind of throws her entire reality in a loop and the, that scene that is added with the unicorn at the end the origami unicorn is them running off into the sunset of the final cut of the film yeah. so so in the final cut it removes the the happy ending if you will, and they just kind of disappear into the elevator. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And that's it. But yeah, in the in the original cut, they have this like thing where they run off, famously using outtakes, I think, from The Shining or something oh, like that. Oh, they, that's really? right, in the car or yeah, and yeah, following some, them through. There's the, a yeah. footage of them, something from The Shining. I, I briefly saw that. Yeah, I remember but, hearing about that. Yeah, so. but yeah, it is interesting question. I like to, I, I, I. I land on on Harrison's side on this. Um, I like to believe that he's not a replicant only because I think that what I like about Rick Deckard is that Rick Deckard is not anything special. Um, in one of the commentaries I read, kind of talk about how Rick Deckard is actually less than spectacular in many ways. In fact, he only kills two of the replicants and it's the two women who he shoots in the back. Yeah, and in, and and Brian James's character, you know, who's going to kill him, you know, wake up, it's time to die. That great line, of mm -hmm. course, Rachel kills him. Him, Dave, so yeah. um, you know, he's not spectacular. He's you know, it's kind of the Indiana Jones thing where he's a kind of supposed to kind of be retired, and he's over it, he's done, he's kind of blundering about, and he's just not good at a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. He just kind of finds ways to get out of it. You know, obviously the one romance scene, the one kind of uh, emotional scene where he's kind of demanding of Rachel's character for intimacy rather than uh, making any effort to create it. <laughs> um, and I, I just think it peril, it, it con you know, I don't, I don't know, not contradicts, but it's kind of opposed a little bit to the perfect, uh, replicant that they're trying to create you know he's very human in so many different ways and i like that contrast is probably the word i was looking for that's a good point between I, I, that good, and yeah. you look at rachel who you know is i mean just stunning beautiful yeah uh and super yeah, composed and controlled even if we get into like the gosling yeah. one too he's very yeah. Stayed and yeah. very reserved. Yeah, that's a great and it, well, it's interesting because the the 
Yeah, this whole idea of them being the next six, right? Or the really fiery ones. And if anything, he would be maybe a little bit more like that because of his more kind of impulsive nature and or just like, yeah, he's just not, he doesn't have the perfection. The the whole more human than human thing. And he seems like so mundanely human. (laughs) Yeah. And And, and, well, I... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, to say he's even more so in the book. They again, I haven't read it in a while, but they talk about it in those commentaries that we listen to. How in the book he's like a bespeckled, overweight, just kind of nobody. Yeah, you know, he's not some sort of brave debonair, you know, detective going yeah. out. Yeah, you know. I I honestly spent the most time on the side on Ridley Scott's side thinking he was a replicant until the sequel came out. And then I was like, it just makes so much more sense for him not to be. Yeah. With this sequel. Uh, I mean, love and um, who's the guy that replaces Tyrell in the sequel. Oh, uh, Jordan Catalano, Jared Leto. (laughs) Yeah. I can't think of his character's name, but it's implied. He's also a replicant, right? Like his eyes do the thing when they, when he shines them right, like they have that look to them. Yeah, it's 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 left, I think, pretty far open. But yeah, I would agree that there's certainly is he of one of Terrell's creations. Of, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so, um, I think that all of that is proof that Harrison Ford is not because that thing has not aged like Jared Leto's thing has not aged in the same way that Harrison Ford has. And uh, Andrew Wallace, sorry, I had to look it up. Wallace. Oh, yeah. Wallace. It's Wallace yeah. Corporation. Wallace Corp. Yeah. And love is just like perfect, pure perfection. Oh. Yeah, right. She uh, is so great. That actress is so great in that role. It's oh, just... yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, um, yeah, I, I'm sure that through our organic conversation, we'll kind of really tap into the um, plot of, of the sequel too. Uh, in 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 the first one, and I don't mean to jump into the sequel either, but it just and I think uh, it's pretty kind of fluid between the two. Is good. Yeah, I I just really like how there's this flow of conflict between the two movies, and how like it's in the in and I will make the argument that in the end, it's just showing that it's a cyclical nature that it will always be this way, where it's like the first one is like humans versus replicants, and then the second one is like replicants versus humans but they also i the in the sequel the the love interest between the virtual reality wife and that is just absolutely heartbreaking that is the that whole thread through the movie is spectacular in my opinion isn't it how the yeah and, and the replicants look down on this thing you know this this artificial life because it's even more artificial than they are because it's not tangible so uh yeah yeah, that uh that really i think was the like it's just so spectacular how it really continues that that struggle that just one right to it's like this flow of conflict between the two of them yeah Dave, so I think when we had talked about Blade Runner, you had mentioned these weren't like maybe like necessarily right up your alley or maybe kind of science fiction isn't your thing 100%. So I'm curious, you know, what was your exposure 
till uh, Blade Runner at all, or you know, because I think Palmer, you had seen it before or had yeah. enjoyed it. It's it's a little more kind of up our alley, and so from coming from a different perspective, where maybe like the theming isn't hundred percent your interest, or you know, how, how does a movie like this um, reach you, or what are the themes that stick out to you? Um. I think that I'm trying to remember. I feel like I first watched it when I was living in Cleveland Heights. So it would have been at least nine to 10 years ago. And uh, I would have been, I don't know. Uh, yeah. In my early thirties, I guess by the time I actually finally saw it, I think. And I think I watched the theatrical cut first. I want to say that I got, you know, I probably did get, because the 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 final cut came out in 2007 is that right i think so i think yeah so i think i probably got what i remember is getting something like a double disc thing from the library in cleveland heights it was like a walking distance and so i because i remember watching both versions um and i can't recall what pushed me over the edge to take that leap i think to some extent it, it was just the reputation of it as this you know it um, super influential movie and um, I'm curious about versions of things uh, you know how how kind of the edit can make a difference and the stories behind movies like that I, I honestly think it was a combination of that and just there was this period where because the library was so close to be like a five seven minute walk and they had a great great selection at this library um the bride and I would just go there and I would, I would grab things off the shelf in a kind of a non-calculated way. That's very generally uncharacteristic for me of my media <laughs> consumption. And, um, and so I think I just picked it up in that kind of curious way and, and sat and, and watched it. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. And, um, I'm not sure I can speak as well to the themes, at least not in this moment. Um, but that actually was one of the questions I wanted to ask you, um, just because I think of you as, I think I have a misconception about maybe how much media you saw up until what point in your life. And uh, so when you said that I saw like, what was the the Val Kilmer, Michael Douglas movie, Ghost in the Darkness or whatever, in a theater, I'm like, whoa, you were watching movies in the theater then? So um, yeah, I, but I'm curious because, yeah, it's less... Well, I'm always just interested in why people are passionate about something. So um, I hope I kind of gave you a sense of where I came at this from. More of a sense of curiosity for me and in, in film, in the film legend of Blade Runner than sure. anything it's about. Um, but yeah, yeah I mean, was, a lot of did, anybody who does sci-fi to any degree will talk about the impact that that movie had on them. Yeah. I mean, as far as set design, you know, and, and really Scott is really kind of, dismissive of it almost he just says well i came from this background of filming commercials and we had this obviously one long set in a back lot of warner brothers i think is where it was but he's like we would just film a corner of the set and then we'd just like turn a bunch of shit upside down and paint it a different color yeah yeah <laughs> and um film the next scene um but to the human eye it all looks distinct right and so the thing that i just really loved about it or that stuck with me, even after not necessarily loving it the first time, was just this very interesting feel of the film, starting from the first kind of 
I forget if they, they call it like Hades or something of that shot of the, the car coming in over yeah, LA. It's like a hellscape yeah. kind of a modern, um, like a city, but like a hellscape of a city. I've seen that shot a lot. <laughs> I've seen it in the crow, yeah. uh, it looked just the same, you know, but that was the first. Yeah. That was like that, 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 that shot is like the fucking ship in star Wars, you know, yeah. the one that just keeps going forever. Oh yeah. It is so iconic yep. and unprecedented. And uh, when I, I started to rewatch it the other day, I, it was a little bit breathtaking to me. I was just like, holy shit. And I was just remembering like all the movies I'd seen it in and they hold on it for so long and they really take your time. Cause I started to watch it and then like a few minutes in, I decided, oh, I wouldn't get through it all tonight. So I'll start so I, anyway. So I, what, but then the next day I came back to it and my thought was like, I just got through that opening scene and, th- and that was true. But I was also five minutes into the movie, (laughs) (laughs) literally. So I was like, but it works, man. That sets a real tone and it it sets the world in motion that is immersive. Exactly. Because you feel like, uh, you know, Ridley Scott had talked about initially where it was all going to be indoors and less kind of of setting setting the framework for the entire world. And then Ridley, you know, wanted them to build, of course, the, the Terrell Corporation, Zigger, whatever those are called, you know, pyramid thing, Ziggurat, is that the name of them? Um, but, you know, the huge building and then, of course, the hellscape shot. Uh, and then, you know, filling a lot of the set at night gave them a lot of ability to, you know, not worry about California mountains in the background, you know, because it's dark. So you can't see anything yeah. right there. And, um, they were able to do a little more outdoor stuff and set the the feel of the film. And that's the interesting thing to me because you, it allows your imagination to run and build all, you know, well, there's this gigantic city. What kind of other stuff is going on? And who are all these other characters? And obviously Roy Batty's speech at the end talking about, you know, I've seen things that, you know, I've seen off of Orion's belt and the Tannhauser gate. It's like, it's like a couple senses, but now there's this huge world of off all these off world colonies. And, you know, there's just this ability to, and it gives your ability for your mind to run. They don't show you any of those things and they don't show you a lot of things, but you have the ability based on what they did show you to visualize this world of, you know, the planet earth, but then, you know, where else have we gone and what else have we done and what else is happening and all these, these battles and um, mining and, you know, it just opens that up and gives you freedom to, to dream and conceptualize. And I just think Ridley Scott in his set design and all of that allows because of the detail you to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I kept was I was looking for confirmation of this, but I I think that was his first background was as a set designer or something. Oh, so like, okay. I could, oh, nice. Uh, or some sort of designer. Um, yeah, he's to, anyway. But yeah, he it says he began his career as a television designer and director before moving into advertising and then filmmaking. Um, but I mean, he's had a couple things since Blade Runner. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What is, I mean, but what has Ridley Scott done in the last 30 years? Am I right? Well, I mean, some yeah. of it has been less good than others. If you look yeah. at some of this, but, uh, but he was yeah. on a real roll back then. Another intro, like a little coincidence I saw in trying to find that detail was that coming into Blade Runner, like, of course he'd done Alien, which was 
game changing. And something I didn't know or had forgotten was this whole thing, this of him. I, I don't know if it was him or who on the production basically made the decision to just change Ripley from a, to cast Ripley as a, as a, as a female, but not change anything. And so all of the oh. strength, so all, so you just weren't used to seeing women in that kind of a context, but partially that it was because they just didn't pay any attention to the fact that it was a woman in the, it wasn't meant to be. So it was written as a man suddenly cast as a woman and set forth this kind of template for like your, your That's badass, awesome. like, you know, your Furiosas, your, uh, Sarah Connor, all that kind of the precedent is sent there. Anyway, so he had made Alien, which is unbelievable. I only saw Alien for the first time in the last like three years at the Alamo Draft House. I saw a double feature of Alien and Aliens, and uh, oh, he was great. Yeah. <laughs> it was well, I, uh, real quick as an aside. So we talk about Star Wars kind of being somewhat foundational in this view of science fiction being like everything is shit of science fiction, right? Like things are beat up and like. Stuff yeah. is just like not good. And obviously Ridley Scott built on that. And then Blade Runner is the same thing. And like, hey, the future isn't shiny and round. And um, like, it's it's now, but terrible. Grimy. <laughs> more terrible yeah. than now is. Yeah, it's like yeah. a real lived in place. So sorry. All yeah, of absolutely. our problems will still be there. And all of these other terrible things. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah right, we right. We will still have New all problems. of our problems too. So. Right, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. But like, yeah, to, to like Ridley really, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not saying you got that from Star Wars, but obviously with Alien was very much that way. Mm-hmm. Industrial, yeah. you know. But there are essentially, he describes that crew as essentially space truckers. You know? Right, yeah, like right. <laughs> So they're like blue collar workers in, sure. of the future. So it, uh, and, and Deckard is the same way. Is it Deckard with a D Deckard. or yeah. yeah, with a D at the end. So it's Deckard is the same thing. He's like this out of work blade runner, right? Who's done. He thought, you know, he wants to be done with it. He just wants to like eat his noodles and be yeah. peace. And... <laughs> I think he knows he's probably not that great at it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I love how that dude he gets yeah. the noodles from. Where like it seems as though he couldn't understand them, or there was this language barrier. And I think I was reading this correctly. And then at the end of the scene, somebody else come when they come in to like haul him off. You realize that the English, that the that the, the guy that's serving him the noodles understands English perfectly because he speaks it or something. Where it's just like giving him a hard time. Yeah. I don't know. It was it was right. delightful. I was really charmed so by. Awesome. I just know it's more an understated thing that Harrison Ford is doing in it from compared to some of the, you know, broader things of the Indiana Jones stuff. But I was riveted by him. I was just like this. I I forget. You know, I've only seen him as an older oh, yeah. guy recently, and he's always fun to see. But man, the little bit I I saw, like the half of the movie I saw, I, I was just like. He's, this he's, guy's a treasure, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and he's just doing the such faces, great work. The faces that yeah. he makes. And, you know, he talked about on some of the press junkets initially afterwards that he wasn't maybe the most happy with the movie. He kind of felt like I just stood around like it, it was a detective movie. And I didn't do any detecting. Right. Like I just yeah. kind of, but, but even he in, in an interview in this, that uh, the interview in the book was done prior to 2049 talks about how he was still young in his career to some degree and he didn't necessarily see the vision that Ridley Scott had even when he's done and it reminded me of Tom Hardy having to publicly apologize to George Miller <laughs> you know yeah 
yeah. in their press junket and say, George, I'm sorry, I couldn't see it. You know, and, and that's that's what this is to some degree. Harrison yep. is, I think, maybe a little too proud to say it quite like Tom Hardy did in a different generation of, of actor, for sure. But basically, in a roundabout way, saying we, did, we just couldn't necessarily see the vision that Ridley had for the movie. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because those guys, they knew their, I mean, Harrison Ford had done a lot of pretty big shit and seen some stuff go down and and it's difficult. I mean, that's actually a little bit with um, not to, to, to derail it or get into it, but some of the challenge at my work involving film production is coming with some people coming in and be like wanting to do things in an entirely different way. Sure. The, the way that our experience has shown this is not going anywhere but into the rocks you know yeah. <laughs> and uh so we're resistant yeah. to it uh, because of that and um and because of their their track record but whatever but but things don't change unless you get somebody with with a vision that works out and god damn did this work out the little tidbit i wanted to tell you that that i found was looking for something else that i didn't know was that he came to blade runner after alien so he had that under his belt to be like look i know how to do this so maybe you should listen to me. Um, but it says after a year working on the film adapt- adaptation of Dune and following the sudden death of his brother, Frank Scott signed on to direct this the Blade Runner. And it's funny cause he went from, and then Dune was ultimately directed by David Lynch, but um, the Dennis, this, I don't know. Is it Dennis Villeneuve? Is that how you say it's it? It's Denis, Denis, Denis. Denis. Okay. He's a French director. Yeah. So he's going from, Blade Runner 2049 to the to having directed the new Dune. <laughs> yeah. That's just a funny coincidence. It's good. Like if you get a chance to watch Denis talk about Blade Runner, it's like me talking or you or, you know, a fanny fan talking about Blade Runner and just talking yeah. about the impact. I mean, and if you watch any of his other like Arrival or mm. some of his other sci-fi stuff, you 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 feel it right away. Like there's no no doubt that that sort of sci-fi that what we would now call probably hard sci-fi blade runners hard sci-fi it's not yeah, yeah. it's not star wars right sci-fi it's yep. clunky you know there's no it's not for mass consumption yeah there's no there's no lasers or or space wizards you know it's 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 just it gets there but it's kind of the car is kind of banging into the ground as it makes it across the finish line you can see like he has that he sees that vision as well do you think like after the long the the discussion on ridley scott's vision and how epic it was and how well he was able to achieve it on this film do you feel that the director of 2049 and i won't even attempt to butcher his name sure. Villeneuve, is that right? Yeah, yep. uh, Denis Villeneuve. Uh, do you feel like he was able to tap into that? Uh, and achieve, and you said he was able to grab that same vision. Yeah, I think it. I, I I personally think that he. It feels like a Ridley Scott movie when you watch it. Like I feel like it just like continued on from that he just really said it well in that same universe. He did a great job. Yeah. I, I guess like when I, so I, when I saw it in the theater on IMAX, because I was just so excited for it and it lived up to my expectations for sure. But 
there's a there's the scene the, the the first time in the movie where i was like okay this is what i'm this is where i feel like it's going to go the way i think not not the story but just the feel of the movie is when he's going to search at the uh at the orphanage that's just basically an abandoned trash dump in San, San Diego, which is basically a trash heap and his car gets shot down and he lands there and he gets out of it. And all those people are coming after Gosling's character K and he pulls that gun out. And just this, the sound it was, it wasn't the scene in t- necessarily, but in the theater, in the IMAX theater, the sound of that gun was enough. To just be like, that's, I remember Rick Deckard's gun sound and it just powerful. I mean, they, they, you know, obviously it's different, but it's the same. And you're just kind of like, he, he gets kind of all of the nuances that make Blade Runner what it is and why people like that movie is because of how well thought out and well done the small things are and just the impact that you feel when Kay's character um, starts taking dudes out and the scene progresses. But I just remember almost have to cover my ears just because of like how loud it was and be like, Oh yeah, well, here we are. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, it, that, that sound design in that scene is very impactful. That's a great, the whole, even, the, yeah, that whole scene, him going down, because he said, like, drive the car into the ground, and I was like, that that happens in 2049. He drives the car right into the ground, and that's yeah. that, that scene. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, that's, you're right. That sound is iconic. You can go on, I mean, I can go on and on, certainly, just about, you know, just not shying away at all from this conflict of even the, even K, how he views himself is different than how the other androids view themselves and how he views them is different than how they view him. And you can see that there's a little bit of difference, you know, when you start having androids retire other androids, and, yeah, just how the humans of course view him in various times. Uh, I think the scene too, the other scene that really made me just recognize that I was in a Blade Runner movie was their version of kind of the hellscape where he's returning from the protein, the the conflict at the protein plant and he's in the car flying back to the police station and it's just endless miles, hundreds of miles of, you know, just nothing apartment buildings and advertisements and you're just like well it's not necessarily a hellscape as in like industrial but it's a hellscape right it's yeah all of these people are just existing and this is their existence in this coastal city that has to have a giant wall built because ocean levels are rising and you know it's not good (laughs) the the like the two second shower like like where they're like 99% pure water yeah. and it just like splashes him that's all the shower he gets uh, and he's like filthy and disgusting still yeah. afterwards uh, it, it, it you're right it is a hard science fiction I think that is a good description of it it's 
it has a huge cult following, and I think that's because it just takes a certain kind of person to really enjoy it. Not even appreciate it, just enjoy it, you know? So. Yeah. But. Yeah, just, the, the thing I was going to tell you before, uh, or, or what, your question b- before, Twiggy, about, like, what drew me to her with themes or stuff, I, I, I think what... I'm not interested in science fiction as a rule, but I like science, certain science fiction that, uh, that where the, that is kind of just the backdrop against which things can be heightened and talked about in a different way. So just to, a more simple version of it is something like Highlander. I like the Highlander, uh, film first film and then the TV series. But the reason I like it is because of what some of that, that, that idea is like certain people are immortal and they can only die unless they die a violent death they'll only ever even find out that they're immortals if they die a violent death. And then thereafter they can only die if their heads are cut off and they're all trying to race to be the last one on earth anyway. So it's a simple premise though that, so what then, but then it's all dealt with like, what is it like if you live forever and people around you die and the people you fall in love with, like grow old and die. And so that allows for those things to be dealt with in an interesting way. And so this is a science fiction movie that yeah there's a lot of cool shit but the the cool shit is not just decoration and either the they're very sort of cerebral and they're they're they have action in them and stuff but there's a lot of substance to um ideas that they're trying to move through and then i feel that the science fiction is sort of the setting the the genre stuff is is kind of well, it's not secondary. It, it, it elevates the things that they're trying to explore. And I think that that is very appealing and uh, and satisfying. Even when I don't always know what's going on, I know somebody's up to something, you know? And then yeah. it'll become more clear if I if I give my attention to it. And you can sense that attention to detail, but you can also sense the intentionality behind it, uh, yeah, particularly I, the I, first one. And I think to, to, to really piggyback on that, I think the film has potential for that to happen, right? I think like Palmer's question was, did, did Denny like salvage the corpse of Blade Runner, but then just go in a completely different direction? And there's potential for that, even in the first kind of third of the movie, but then you get to Vegas and you, he just goes hardcore right into the Blade Runner questions, right? Cause you meet Ford, Ford's character, you meet Deckard again, which is just the soul of this movie. Not, I mean, as much as talk about how Rucker Hauer is probably my favorite part of Blade Runner, Harrison Ford and, and Ryan Gosling is great. Don't get me wrong. Just a, an absolute gem. But Ford is the soul of this because, you know, right when they first meet Case hitting him with questions, right? Wait, where are you? Why'd you leave him? Blah, 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 blah. And he just kindly, quietly takes it. And then he says, you know, sometimes if you love someone, you have to leave or, you know, I forget the exact line, but basically they were being hunted and he needed to draw everybody off. Um, which again, people could argue if you were in really Scott's camp that why would Deckard be hunted if he wasn't a replicant? But anyway, all that being said, you know, you get that soul of the movie with Deckard again, giving this picture of Rachel and their child and um, contrasting that with what Wallace is doing, right? This is all just an experiment. This is all just a, 
if I can do this, think of what I can do. I can play God. Um, as evidenced by that just almost traumatic scene of him murdering that woman, um, which was really hard for me to watch. But, you know, just contrasting that with his just completely almost just visceral clarity in trying to get the ability to birth android babies at whatever cost. I can't remember. Why does he want to do that? Why is that evolution important to him? Well, I think it basically can eliminate the need for human childbirth. And it's a basically an assembly and it's a, a self-perpetuating assembly line. Hmm. doesn't have to actually create anything anymore. They physically, I don't think come out and say exactly like this is what he's trying to do, but it's, I think it even makes it worse because it's more a feather in the cap. It's more a, a, a claim than it is actual any sort of like, well, you're, you're, you're just cycling through these androids to try to find the right combination of genetic DNA that will allow them to yeah. give birth and just um, almost at any cost, right? There's nothing he won't do to make it happen. I, do you think that he so th this starts getting into some of the 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 philosophy of the films that I w am interested in uh what do you think his means is like his ultimate goal if he can get this is it so that he can make enough to perpetuate man to the stars and beyond that's what or, his stated goal is I think yeah um I personally think, though, that that goal does not include mankind. I think that I think I take the implication very heavily that he is uh, a replicant himself. And that scrapped storyline of Tyrell being a replicant for another Tyrell that was in yeah. biogenic, like that helps support that. Like maybe. Maybe Jared Leto was a contingency for Tyrell being killed like that got put into place for this to continue on. And this was the lost piece that he's looking for. But I really think that is it to it is to eliminate the man, the need to have to manufacture right. all of these replicants. For sure. But because I think now you can send that, you can send 20 androids to a colony. Right. And then they can. Yeah self-perpetuate and and eliminate the need for humans i think from the equation i think that's the and and love is a great one that's where i got a lot of the impression was from love's reactions and and actions throughout the movie like constantly accusing uh jenna of uh like being afraid of progress and not wanting you know uh I think that just helps solidify that like human I don't think I don't think the humans were meant to like continue into that perpetuation to the stars that he's trying to get you know yeah so, it, it it's great it's the it is that question of like who's more human right right and they they continually ask that and you can ask that in our world today for sure 100% you know what what when we make some decisions, are those human decisions or are we 
making them for some other like less than human reason. Um, right. And in this case, you can kind of, you can put that in the, put these replicants there and say, okay, now, now ask the same question, but from a different perspective. Yeah. It's interesting. We, we're, yeah. it seems like we come the back to like with the, some of the reasoning behind her, why we don't maybe we don't think why Deckard might not be a replicant is because of his so many imperfections you know that uh it's like the fallibility is what defines his humanity and uh and that reminds me of like what people say when like about like we all make mistakes we're all human <laughs> you ever heard that phrase yeah uh, yeah it is interesting or like if he was a replicant for example would he have made the decision? Would he have had the ability to make the decision to leave Rachel in order to ensure right. her safety? Because it's right. it's counterintuitive, right? Because Kay doesn't understand it. Kay says, "Why did you leave her? Why 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 did you abandon yeah. them?" Right? That's all. Kay Kay in that circumstance would have died, and you can argue he does die at the end of this to to facilitate safety. Um, and to facilitate his mission. Whereas Deckard, of course, does sees it differently. He, he thinks that he can draw off and con, you know, he went in and showed them how to make the birth records different. And I forget, there was a couple things he did to throw off the yeah. scent of the Wallace corporation or maybe even Terrell corporation back then. I can't remember, but either way, you know, yeah. making decisions that, aren't necessarily logical or, you know, machine yeah, it's logical. Like they, with the memories and stuff, right? They kind of, if they do want someone to do something, like maybe this is, so this is really me talking as a, as a form of some sort of weird question or confirmation, but like they, they know these are emotionally driven. Uh, the replicants are emotionally driven or whatever. So they kind of create the memories such that would move them toward the path that they want them to take. Someone wants them to take. So they kind of wanted Kay to think he was a certain person that he wasn't in order to have him pursue things. And if that's the case, again, it would be that kind of true unpredictability of a, of a real human being that their motivations are not always consistent their actions are not always consistent with their desires and their the, the, the those type of imperfections you know where people don't act in their self-interest and they don't do they do something that no one could like try to orchestrate you know people are tried they're manipulated all the time but, sure and, so, and a lot of times that really works <laughs> and uh but sometimes it doesn't and sometimes it doesn't because of really weird things that you could never predict am i getting that kind of right though that they were trying yeah. to program the the memories for kind of a, well, a means as to an end or so i but i think though yes i think that that memory was planted to try to elicit a certain reaction but i got the impression when he interviews her earlier in the movie before he knows who she is i really got the impression that she had implanted that memory multiple times in the hopes that so so to your argument 
were those memories there to steer them and make them do that? I think that that only works to a certain extent and that there is still some level of free will involved there because she, he was the first one that she planted that memory in that led to all of those, that all the pieces fell into place. Yeah. Cause what we define out later, of course, is that he's reliving her. Me- she's, she's taking and putting riffs on her own life memories yeah. into replicants because uh, Wallace found out that they'll, they respond better differently, whatever, when it's a realistic memory, when it not, not, not some sort of like supernatural thing that if it happened to somebody else, then they'll react better, but it's just more authentic because she experienced it even though she's, you know, could argue 50, 50, right? She's part replicant, part human. She has the ability to understand how those things maybe do affect people um, yeah. better, which is why she gets the job, right? To, to create memories for androids. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was really interesting to me. When we got to the end, I'm like, oh yeah, we just basically relived her childhood. <laughs> I get it. You know, right. right. The time in the orphanage. Um, all, all of those things. Really interesting. It's, it's the Bane switch from uh, the last, Batman, Christopher Nolan Batman movie. It's the like the whole time you think that you're the child trying to escape from that prison is Bane, when in reality it's uh, what was her what was her name? Yeah, I know you're talking about yeah. Rachel. I think her name thing. is Rachel also. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or no, no, oh, it was wasn't. It Sorry, no. no, no, the Katie Holmes character is Rachel. Yeah, um, the Rajah Ghoul's daughter. Yeah, that same thing. Like you, you are watching this memory, and everybody's head is shaved, and they're all dirty, and they're kids, of course, and so they like they all look kind of androgynous a little bit. And you have, a, you are le- you are buying the ruse just like he is the entire time. Yeah. So well, and to me, there's almost like this. It's almost like a little bit of a Pinocchio feel to me sometimes with him. In the sense that he just wants to be a real boy. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants to believe it so much, just like we almost, you know, to the point where yeah. I want to believe it. Yeah. Um, and then he's going to try to do all these things that, you know, not not in the Pinocchio sense of turn into a real boy, but find out he's a real boy. And his desire just to be loved, of course, and that whole, the, you know, idea that. Palmer talks about with Anna de Armas's character. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. You know, so many different threads think, there. Do you think, so the idea of him being that child, this, this child, prodigal child, one could argue mm-hmm. is planted by her at like, she's the one that remind like, says this is you she like shows her like pulls the toy out you know i forgot yeah because she does kind of reinforce it at various times yeah and so is his desire really fueled by his need for that love to be genuine because if she thinks i'm special and i actually am special then maybe she genuinely loves me and isn't programmed to love me because that also gets addressed a couple times where 
she's like, oh, you're, I see you're one of our customers as well. And uh, do you enjoy our product? And it's, she's very realistic. And they, earlier in, in the rain, she says something that's very, very, very sentimental. And he's like, you don't have to say that. Right. You know, uh, and I wonder if like his need for this to be true is if that would validate because he wants that he wants that love that he feels for that AI to be right. more than a program. Like he wants it to be genuine. Like that scene at the end, you know, where it's the huge version of her and he's walking back like after all the shit's gone down. He just stops and looks at her was just like oh it's so heartbreaking yeah this thing i can't uh, have even though i really want it and it's and i f- really do feel that that like that's another one of those ambiguous things that you are left to like question is did she genuinely there are moments where you believe it's more than programming or is the program just that good you know uh, yeah yeah, that, isn't... that whole thread, that whole love story between those two is my favorite part of the whole sequel. Sorry. Nice. I could see that. There's a lot of interesting themes in there for sure. Yeah, I was wondering, like, because um, this, again, I'm not sure if I'm getting this right, but so the, the in the first one with the Nexus 6, their shortened lifespan is because of the understanding that they will kind of get a consciousness of their own after that time, and so it's to kind of phase them out. Right. They um, could be, they'll become volatile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it seems like there's a bit of a with uh with Joy there as well that she's kind of evolving. Um like all these things with yeah. they, once they sent them in motion, there's a certain amount of kind of Yeah, they become less controllable and they kind of get their own I I guess their own desires beyond perhaps what they were intended or I don't know. Yeah, no, that's exactly what it is. They, 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 well, if they become self-actualized and realize there that yeah. they're just designed for a purpose, then they'll they'll become, you can't control them. Whereas the, the hope was with memories, well, now I, now I have a childhood and I love these people and I, you know, I have yeah. this, I have a place in the world. I have, I belong, uh, you know, which is funny because we all are, die on this other planet. Yeah. You know, go fight this war on another planet. That's what my purpose is because yeah. of all these memories. Because we're all trying to find places to belong, or at least at certain place yeah. pieces of our life, you know, we're trying yeah. to find places to belong. Yeah, I think we're all trying. I mean, maybe not all consciously, but I do think one of the goals of like growing up <laughs> and and getting older and, and having your life get better as you do that is to self-actualize so that you're not just following somebody else's script that that harms you in some yeah. way or or uh you know learn the ways that you're harming yourself and change and all that so maybe yeah i mean this uh, this is like you don't get this in, the, in your everyday uh you don't get this in slocky science fiction this right. type of like no. No. <laughs> i wouldn't have uh so that's i think some of this speaks to like the really uh so yeah, deep like wells. A, a technical perspective i was curious Dave, like, uh, so Deacon, Roger Deacon wins an Oscar for cinematography for 2049. And I was curious, like what you, just from like a technical perspective of the movie, do, do does that ring true to you? Do, like, do you, do you feel that as far as, you know, frame to frame or shot to shot? Does that jive with you or? Uh, I mean, it's definitely breathtaking, and I, I, I like yeah, that sort of every frame of painting type thing. 
definitely uh, certainly applies. I have to cop to like I don't. Uh, my understanding of cinematography is pretty limited. I, I literally was like doing this for almost 20 years, semi-professionally at least to some extent, before I locked in to the really key component of like what I think of as this triangle. So if I'm the subject and the, and the camera is like this hand, then the, the strongest source of light ought to be over here to get the look that we're all used to. Like this kind of really basic shit took me a long time to understand. And now that I do, I see it everywhere. I was like, well, that's just kind of it, you know, <laughs> that, that one simple uh, premise. So when it gets far beyond that, I don't actually, I kind of understand some of the concerns, but uh, it's so far outside of the my realm of true understanding for me to appreciate it really well. I have a good friend who does... Uh, he does like he's like a gaffer or like he's he's on these kind of lighting teams and stuff like that for um food network shows like you know big big time shows and he's part of this crew that that moves around and works on them and i was working on something with him a few years ago in this corner and i was setting up one of my lights you know with this principle that i articulate tried to articulate just now this whole 10 and 2 hands on the wheel type triangle vibe and anyway i'm setting up the light i'm like there's this kind of thing where this element, like it's like an umbrella, like you put an, um, an umbrella and you get it to a certain point, it clicks into place, open. The, and this is kind of like that. And then moved it to a certain, he moved it to a certain place before it even clicked and he didn't do it. I was just kind of like, what are you doing? And I was kind of moved to do it to like, in my estimation, finish setting up the light as it should be set up. And he was, and I, realized, and I kind of paused and realized I was kind of interfering with his work. <laughs> I was like, you do this for a living, huh? And so I should maybe let you do that. <laughs> but the other point too, is then I asked him, I was like, well, when you watch these kind of shows, knowing the intricacies of how all this is achieved and do you get really distracted? Like watching television about the lighting of this, that, and the other. And he's like, you know, I only ever really notice it at all. If something's really wrong and another. And so I think for me, it's a yeah. little bit like that too. It's like uh, most of the time, these type of things just wash over me and I can accept them for what they are. But I'll notice and, and, and marvel and be like, that's amazing. And I'll rarely think of what it, I think it would have taken to achieve it. Um, but man, what I always notice is like when something seems off. <laughs> yeah. So this type of immaculate artistry, I, I just, my mouth is just open. <laughs> it's just insane to me how good they can make yeah. some of that stuff look, right? Like, yeah. yeah. And then and you've, you even like talked to, uh, I think watching some of the behind the scenes stuff for 2049 talked about like some of the effects and it's literally like $8 LEDs and like some sort of like little strobing thing, you know, they, mm -hmm. they just, yeah, it's really basic stuff, but it's how they can transfer their vision to the screen. Right. And just capture it that way. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, they, they, they see it before it's ever on a screen and it's ever CGI'd or whatever. Like it, that's the, the artistry of it, not the $10 in parts and the two hours of setup or whatever, you know, that's part yeah. of it. That's yeah. part of the process. Obviously you need the, the $150 million budget or whatever to make it happen. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of those things are just tools and it's, it's the way the, it's the, the vision behind those things and people wisely using tools. So actually for me, the difference with those two movies is one is pre CGI 
And so like watching Blade Runner, not 2049, I'm able to look at it and be like, oh, okay, they pro- they in the hellscape thing at the beginning, like that's a, probably a model and yet yeah, at night, so you don't see all this other stuff. And those explosions were probably filmed separately and matted on. And there's a motion controlled camera, all this, like I can kind of process that. But for me, once you're involving CGI, I, that I can't fathom that. Like I, I actually have a tr- I can't work in three dimensions in graphical space. Like I've tried it a bunch of times. I've taken courses because so much of what you see on TV, like graphics and the way they move around and three dimensionally interact with, I'm like, I should be able to do that. I can do every other job in some facet for my job list. When you see in a thing, I mean, I can't, couldn't cater something really, but you know what I mean? But like, I can't seem to do that. And then the animation that that involves, like my brain just does not compute. So the artistry that involved there so beyond me that it's a truly another level. Again, to Palmer's point that I found really moving and just heartbreaking at the same time is where the the AI love interest brings in, well, you think she's just a, a prostitute, but turns out to be something a little bit more later in the movie, but brings her in. And the way that they didn't take me out of it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the way they had to execute that CGI in order to not make it too perfect, make it seem just janky enough, you know, to where you recognize both of the performance. I don't, you know, that to me is just mind blowing. How how you do that and make that feel the way that I felt afterwards is, is just a real from the, from the actors to the storyboarding, to get it to that point, to, executing the cgi of the overlay and i mean yeah knowing how much to show and all that yeah it's all the the artistry behind i mean obviously there is artistry involved in rendering those um things but the real the things that make it tick are all the decisions made leading up to that to how much you do the interplay and yeah to, to make you feel what they're Ah man, they're manipulating us just like the replicas. Yeah, they are. <laughs> but I'm enjoying. I need it. a so light what, to what shine in my eyes right now. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Let's see your serial number. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. How but, about that I, fight at the beginning in that first opening? Oh, scene, I wanted man. to talk about that because I'm on the fence. Because you got Dave Batista again. He's yeah. and I thought maybe the speaking to what you mentioned a few shows ago, Palmer, about him wanting to play kind of average people he kind of is getting to do that here mm-hmm. uh yeah but he's still a hulk of a man and so yeah you get, get little ryan gosling walking in and then he gets the he physically gets the better of him and i'm that was struggling with that but at the same time i'm like he's repeatedly hitting him in the throat i was like that would probably immobilize i don't know how did you get how did that read for you guys <laughs> that i fight. just kind of read it as just an advance you know it's a. Uh, He's a it's new the model. newer model. He's a newer model. Yeah. yeah. He's quicker. He's smarter. He's, you know, my iPhone now is way better than my old iPhone, even though they're the same size. Right. Or maybe mine's yeah. a little smaller now. Right. So I guess that's how I viewed it as showing how K is just superior. In, but we didn't know yeah. he was a replicant at that point. At least I didn't. I thought he was just a dude. So it's like just a yeah. dude showing up and beating up Dave Batista. I'm like, but, well, I, I don't think know. It's meant to reveal that. that. 
he's like, yeah, well, even Dave Batista says that at one point, like, how does it feel like hunting your own kind? Or doesn't he say, yeah, that? Like, oh. it's the scene is meant to reveal that, yeah, at least in my, yeah. in my viewing, that Gosling is just a newer I think version. You're supposed supposed to 100% be asking that question, Dave. Oh, that's like, right, right, yeah. Right, Ryan Gosling yeah. beat this yes. guy, Agreed. and that's the reveal is like. Uh, is that he asked them, how can you hunt your own car? Right. Like, and I, I forgot, I forgot that the, 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 it's kind of flipped in this one. Whereas in, in Blade Runner, the Harrison Ford character were, tr- we questioned sort of later as whether or not he's a replicant. Whereas in this one, it's set up from the beginning by that, yeah. that he is one. Yeah. And for a minute, we questioned that he's not. Right? It's even kind of on the flight there. Exactly. He like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Auto mode. Yeah. He puts, a, puts the, the flying car in auto and almost kind of like shuts down. Yep. He goes to sleep, yep. and then, you know, like they're hinting at it the whole time that he's a machine doing machine-like work. That's right. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah. I just and, got mixed uh, up. And I think that that uh, love is another great example of like the power and strength and like a killing ability when she assassinates that corn. Oh, man. Like, <laughs> one. Like, oh, here, here's my paper. Like, just like. One quick jab right to the back of the neck, and then that guy is he's done. <laughs> like, yeah. Poor David uh, in Man, I yeah. love that guy. He plays such a great creeper. <laughs> he does, that's a great word for it. Yeah. 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 Hey, come uh, out to wherever they're filming, wherever we're filming this thing. I'm gonna fly you 15 hours across the world for this role where you get destroyed in one yeah. minute and forty seconds on screen. <laughs> yeah, it's so crazy oh man and it's uh, like this weird quick jab right in the back of his neck so yeah, yeah no i uh i i totally that that opening fight is just like like just they're right next to a wall like an opening in the wall but it's like no we're going through this wall right here you know like yeah oh is that fantastic uh, no i i agree that's just there's a lot of you think he ate the soup afterwards? You think he tried the gar- like he yeah. tried the garlic soup? <laughs> Maybe. I think he did. Yeah, I bet he did. Sure. Uh, I think that yeah. that. So I think my take on it is that that memory did was even act, impacting and making him a little unique, even prior to this whole wild goose chase going off. Yeah, because he has a relationship with, with the with Robin. Uh, I can't remember anybody's name today. Must be more tired than I think. But you know, you already have. You can tell they have an established relationship, right? Right. What do you think of the the other one that I the contrast in the assessment from the original Blade mm. Runner to this one, where it's like the the comp test, right? Like right. And and the original one, and then this one is the baseline test, and that. That first, because you see that almost right after that fight with Batista, and you see a couple really interesting things, like he's walking through the precinct, and the other officers are like, like just garbage, like just garbage, and like he just like is stoic the whole time, and that baseline is so intense, and it it makes me uncomfortable. It does. Even I agree. Like like a few times, like watching it, it just makes me uncomfortable and oh yeah what so my question is like what what do you think the contrast between those two like the way they present those in the movies and yeah it almost seems like now they've in this new you know it's been 
50 years now, 40 years, no, 30 years. Sorry. 2019 is when the first one is set. What's funny is in the book, sorry, quick aside, they changed it. It was originally be set in 2020, but they, there's something like they didn't want to have it confused with the vision, like mm. people to get confused with 2020 vision. And so oh, they changed yeah, it to yeah. 2019. Huh. That's what I guess these test screenings do for you. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> that's crazy. So I guess we would have Blade Runner 2050, but now we have 2049. Um, <laughs> and it's everything seems just a little more mechanized right now. And they're just, they've, after these 30 years, they've implemented androids more into society. And now it's just more of a automated process where the, the other, the Voight-Kampf test was very manual and very human intense, right? Deckard had yeah. to sit there and ask a hundred questions and, um, now it's just a machine that you stand in the room and it do, 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 you know, you have to get the read back and it's testing their body response and their eye movements. And it's doing it all automated because there's so many of these androids now and it's a quick way to get through it. Right. It's not a, and they should stay on. That's why it's called baseline. They should stay. There should not be an emotional response. Whereas the, the, my, the, the comp test was really, to elicit an emotional response. Yeah. And so it's kind of testing the same thing, but you want them to stay on baseline that entire time, you know, like, and uh, it is intense. That reminds me of my favorite Rachel Young scene is when, or Rachel scene, Sean Young scene, or one of my favorites. I have tons of favorites. When I say that, I don't really mean that because I just (laughs) love the whole thing. Of course. Yeah. Is when she's smoking and she says, Mr. Deckard, are you testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian? Yeah. I just, <laughs> I just absolutely, it's such a great, the smoke and just the coyness in her response. And just, there's so much oh, about that is, that I really enjoy. So, yeah. So Which is like, so yeah. I, I know we're, we're up, we're way past our time, but there's a, the scene where, of course, you know, they bring out the replicant of Rachel and, you can just see in Deckard's face that when he, when he's going to say that she has the wrong eye color, he knows what's going to happen. But I, I cried in the theater. Um, of course, when love shoots her, because you're just like, it's just so brutal. Wallace and his mission are just abject of emotion. And it's a straight line to the finish line and whatever it takes, no holds barred, to the end because um, they're replicants and just <laughs> yeah it's so jarring and so just like wow just yeah, completely heart I, I don't know i don't have words to describe it really just how like hard that was for me to watch that um, that's what makes me think that the the ai actually was legitimately sentient because the way that love uses like looks him in the eyes and knows that they actually do love each other and then kills that AI off, you know, and knows exactly what she's doing. It's just all malicious and, and calculated. Yeah. Calculated. That's what it is. You know, just devoid of any, anything resembling who I want to be as a person, right? <laughs> Empathetic, right. Uh, you know, yeah, just devoid of those I, things. And it's, it's, you know, you know, it's, I see that not, not to that 
extent, of course, but I do feel that and see that sometimes in my life where I'm not as much of those things as I'd like to be. Right. Um, and it drives that home, you know, about what it, what it means to be human is understanding of people and empathetic and kind and open to recognizing other people's experiences and all of those things. And this is the exactly opposite of that. <laughs> yep. Yep. And that's 100%. so much of what joy provides, right? Is, is this sort of empathy to him and this reflection that like, you're a good person and I believe in you and you're special. Um, it's funny. Cause I was thinking it's like this joyless, the Blade Runner 2049, my memory of it was, it was very, and it was dirty, but like kind of sterile in terms of like people's emotions. Whereas like Harrison Ford's fun, you know, like with the guy with the noodle guy, there's a little bit of that going. And, um, but yeah, this, this 2049 feels more cold in terms of the way people are, except for joy. And it's like that, that's like a manufactured thing to yeah, allow really for people to have this controlled Oh, and you, yeah, it reminds you of hearing things like about the pleasure unit of the, yeah. is that yeah. what the Daryl Hannah character model was? Hey, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, that's anyway. true. I totally forgot. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought I was struck I, to look I, at the cast name that that was, I was like, cause I didn't remember anybody's character names. And so I don't know if I even remembered that her name was joy, you know, J O I, but, but still, right. He's the joy only real joy in the movie. And yeah. it's funny how love is exactly not that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, well, she loves the mission. She loves yeah. she she loves Wallace, right? And and I uh, yeah, man. It it's just so so good. I would also for anybody listening, if you haven't taken the plunge, I would also recommend there's like a is it three or four little shorts? Yeah. I think there's four. All, it's like Blade Runner, and they all have different numbers at the end to represent mm-hmm. the, like, and the 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 years that they all take place in the history between the original Blade Runner and the second one. Those help fill in a little bit of this, also like, like philosophy of the universe. The, the yeah, they're, they're animated shorts. What are they? Five to seven minutes ish. Yeah, or something. They're not, well, they're all different media because like there's one with Jared Leto. Like there, it's a live oh, action right. one where he like I forgot like about he, that. And, uh, but the, the one that explains the blackout, that one is animated and that's where you like see the background where even, uh, uh, Dave Batista's character f- like realizes that it's just the war that he's fighting, thinking that he's fighting this war for somebody that paid for his, to be a rec- replicant to fight it. He looks under the eye of somebody he just killed and sees another. They're a replicant too, and he's like, "What is the point of this then? If they're, if we're yeah. not fighting anybody tangible, you know, like, so it uh, intense, very, in, it, it, it's like such great layers, yeah. You know, it's I, definitely like, not popcorn cinema like we've talked about. No, so I also think that the the fact that the second one does feel colder is because you only there's only like two humans that you actually enter like mm. everybody else is a replicant in the in the movie if you want to look at it that way like sure yep some of the yeah, robin wright folks, Penn. But... yeah she's human robin folks. wright 
Mm-hmm. Robin Wright Penn oh. is human. And she's cold Harrison as fuck. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh man, super cold, right? Yeah. Like, but she totally uh, wants to uh, jump his bones. Am I right? You know what I'm saying? There is oh, that. she really does. Let that it, that is painfully awkward. That scene. <laughs> I forgot funny. about that. Like, because she wow. does want like that. That's what she wants, and he's just oh. like, well, anything else? Like, he's just like, get out of here, you know. And then the, the wife <laughs> thing goes off, which is always like, I'm listening to what's fucking going on, and I don't like it, you know. Like, uh, it's good shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm glad that we finally got a chance to have this conversation because it's. I, I know it is a passion. We have to do a when the when the Furiosa prequel comes out, we'll do the Mad Max one. That's a good idea. Yeah. I haven't rewatched Fury Road, even though I own it. I, I had I've only ever seen it once in the theater. <laughs> oh I don't wow. know why yeah. I don't know why that is, but because uh, I Well you just loved do it. whenever you're thinking to yourself, Dave, I, I own I owe myself something really good. Yeah. I owe myself yeah. something really nice. Just put that on, soak it in. I appreciate that. I'm I'm susceptible to that type of thing. <laughs> I just fell into it with yeah. uh, with Goodfellas recently. Oh, this this yeah. last week, uh, yeah. where uh, I was hearing about it just just a little too much, and I kept hearing like, no matter what t- point you enter that movie, like you're gonna watch the whole thing. And I, yeah. I thought to myself, <laughs> have I seen the whole thing more than once? And I was like, I don't think so. But if the whole thing feels very familiar, anyway, I was like, that was what I did. That I think the night I was started blade runner but didn't finish it i was i started i'm like i don't know i was like well they say you can't just start goodfellas and not <laughs> go, yeah. go through that that i was trying to oh. just like relax and treat myself something so i tried it and i think it did work i was like oh good <laughs> there, there it was are. so but i'm sure that would work on uh fury roads i i'm glad you planted that in my head because that's gonna pay off yeah and a wonderful viewing and, uh, and now I'm going to have to, you push me over the edge on that Island of Lost Souls stuff. Um, yeah. You're a real uh, yeah. tastemaker here. I appreciate it. Well, Actually, just, both of you are. Palmer, I did the, yeah, the Howard the Duck, it. all of that stuff. I've I've enjoyed it all recently because of you. Well, and now I have an excuse to revisit that stuff. And I want to watch that. I did want to watch that Val documentary anyways, but yeah. I would totally be up for discussing both of those documentaries, especially since Val Kilmer has been like my celebrity yes. nemesis. Like, exactly. Uh, it doesn't have to uh, stop now. Two things can be true. Two, you know, Val, Val Kilmer can be in a rough spot right now, but he could also have been an asshole that deserves a nemesis. Yeah. 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 You know, that's fair. Yeah. Who also yeah. happens to look like Nick Nolte's mugshot. Yeah. There's no, <laughs> I mean, we all have been captured. Oh, no, at wait, times I, gotta in stop. Our I do have to stop that one. Nick Nolte looks like Nick Nolte's mugshot. <laughs> <laughs> Oh uh, well, I really appreciate the the opportunity to talk to because I, I I don't I know a few Blade Runner fans. Like I remember even telling people at work, like, "Hey, I'm gonna go watch this movie." I'm like, ah, like, what are you? What? What? What do you mean? What? 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 Yeah. You don't share this very specific passion <laughs> on this very specific franchise that hardly anybody ever watched yeah. when it first came to the theater. Weird. What are um, you a nerd? Look yeah. at him, he's a nerd. <laughs> we got a nerd here. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. What do you want to feel good about the future? Yeah. Oh hell no. We're none of that around here. <laughs> no. No. Get a very clear looked, picture uh, of your workplace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, my yeah. Just think of very much the standard American fare. 
Sorry, yeah. any of my coworkers who listen to this, you all know I, I'm not some sort of like elite, but like it's pretty pretty straightforward. And I, you know, I obviously I consume a lot of that stuff too. I'm not speaking down to anybody, but um, just not not a lot of. Uh, I, I I went and watched uh, Kubrick's 2001: A Space Odyssey. They re-released it in theaters, yeah. and one of my coworkers like, "Yeah, I'll go with you." <laughs> They won't make that mistake again. <laughs> oh, like they hadn't oh, seen it and they took a no, chance. Yeah. No oh, idea what they were wow. walking into. <laughs> I was oh, like, that is that's well, harsh. I, well, I told I that, even how even could you in, do that? <laughs> even in advance, I was like, okay, so this is sci-fi, but this is not this isn't Star Wars. This is even Star Trek. Like this is <laughs> this is like the seed of sci-fi. It's this like is, sci-fi before sci-fi existed. This is like, slow, hard sci-fi. Like I just want like I didn't just like w- let him walk into it blind. And even afterwards, <laughs> I was like, well, could you at least see why, where like Lucas could have gotten an idea or two, or could you at least see where, you know, sci science fiction people after seeing that would have pulled, you know, where alien comes from, you know, and they, they capitulated on that a little bit, but other than that, they're like, what about the last act? And I was like, well, <laughs> yeah. what about the first, like the prelude? I mean, when the monkeys are yeah. like, did they look at you like, yep. what the fuck is yep. this now? Yeah. <laughs> like Kubrick's going to Kubrick. Like there's some things you just can't. You <laughs> there's can't. only like 45 minutes of actual movie and the rest of it is all just these batshit crazy visuals. And like. you're like, okay, take that scene. Take that scene, that shot. I should say that shot. That shot lasted approximately six hours and 47 seconds. And it could have been, like 18 seconds <laughs> you know like <laughs> yeah it's just different movie making right it's made it a yeah. different time and those shots last forever and they've you know i don't know i mean i i love it it reminds me that that movie is a bit of a precursor for the time that that these blade runner movies take that that's the kind of an original the original cerebral uh i mean maybe not the original but in terms of right. successful um cerebral sort of philosophy philosophy heavy yeah uh sci-fi popular cinema that that seems like an early anyway oh I, they make I, no I mistake i'm a huge fan of it and i mean as as much of it is just i mean people really love kubrick i don't necessarily like i mean i love like dr strangelove and, and things like that but like 2001 kind of feel feels like they were like threw a lot of money at him and he could kind of do whatever he wanted a little bit i mean it was still great or wasn't viewed at the time as such, but now looking back on it, you can see why, or, you know, see where a lot of modern themes of AI and, you know, were way yep. ahead of his time. But, but after 2001, you could not get a coworker to go no, see 2049. Unless it's like a Marvel movie or something with a known yeah. quantity. Yeah. Nobody's going to take my opinion on, <laughs> on movies. <laughs> I went to that re-release too. It was fantastic. Totally worth it. Oh, your, it was amazing. Your, your coworkers batshit crazy. Yeah. No, I mean he's That's great. It, it was, it was joking kidding. to some. Yeah. yeah. It was joking yeah. to some degree, but at the same time, it was clear like we have different interests and we'll agree to pursue our own interests <laughs> as such. So. No, this was great. I I hope we gave a. It is a huge topic and oh, two yeah. movies and all that. I, I hope we kind of scratched most of those itches i i was really if we could, i got a lot out of it i think i think we did a good job like we always do of 
hopefully will spark some interest if somebody was on the fence. Yeah. Yeah. Oh so. man. If you, if you even have a hint of enjoyment of you, you watch minority report or you've, I don't know, whatever. Total, re- total recall minority report. Yeah. Are, are you doing like the Philip K. Dick adaptation? Just any, just like if you watched a recent science fiction movie, you've probably, they've probably stolen something from Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Yeah. In how yeah. they're handling a AI character or. And, and a yeah, like Dex Machina, with, that kind of thing yeah. uh, owes a lot to oh, man. to this. And actually, well, I guess it came before 2049, but uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good movie too. I agree with that. Oh, man. Uh, but yeah, so any if you've movie. enjoyed any of those things, it's like anything else, right? It's going to be clunky. It's a product of its time for sure. You know, there's things that don't work about it that modern tastes don't necessarily um, accept. But once you watch it, I think you can then see its foot, its fingerprints all over modern cinema. Sure. Now, I would. I think the uh, of the two movies, like the Blade Runner original, is more accessible in my mind. It just feels more friendly to folks who are not into, like, not there to. I feel like that the second one is more thinky from the outset, and then it gets yeah. more exciting. Whereas I think um, the original Blade Runner. Um, it takes its time in that five minute opening or whatever, but that's so much more of like a tone setting thing. And then it really gets into, it feels, sh- it feels short. It's like a two hour ish movie, but to me, it, it feels like a 90 minute movie. That one moves. It yeah, kind of pulls move. off this magic trick. Of, yeah. It moves fast. Yeah. For, especially for a Ridley Scott movie, it moves fast. Oh, one last thing I almost forgot. So a long time ago, I saw this person on the internet who, who made a Lego version of the spinner wow which is the flying car now it's not it's not a official lego thing at all sorry it's really reflective so i bought this and like printed out the the manual and i'm still assembling the lego for it because buying lego on like the secondhand resale market is ridiculously expensive so (laughs) yeah it's still a work in process progress but it's a it's a huge model but once i get a chance to get it the final piece is kind of assembled and and have a chance to build it. I'll display it to everybody. But it looks like a very, um, it looks like a very like true kind of version of it. And I'm very excited to actually once I get all the pieces to build it. And I think it's pretty good size too. I kind of forget now. It's been a while since I even purchased that. And, and you know, kind of a, you know, twelve inches long. You know, it's a fairly big model. So. Awesome. You can That's see cool. my passion for Blade Runner goes into a lot of different directions. I love it. That's fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. You'll have to put it on top of that printer when you get it yeah, assembled. Exactly. It'd, it'd be a great my, uh, prop. <laughs> my Eiffel Tower, my $2 Target Eiffel Tower. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you guys really talking about it helped me kind of process it. And it, now I kind of appreciate it all the more. Anyway, so I really enjoyed having that opportunity to chew, chew on it and, t- and talk it through with two guys. I think I understood it better than I did. So yeah, <laughs> that's some of what I, I just, away uh, with. yeah, it's good. It's, it's great to hear. I mean, I think that was the general consensus of the movie too. It, 
obviously was 2049 again, wasn't like a huge box office success. I think in fact, it kind of lost money for them. They're still doing Blade Runner things. I think they're doing some like um, anime on like a dedicated, I don't even know what it is, like dedicated service. And there's some comic books that they're still doing. So they're, they're keeping it alive, I think in some less expensive ways in hopes that there'll be future opportunities and whether it's television like live action television or live action movies to return to it. But, you know, yeah. anytime you're dealing with science fiction at this level, it's expensive, it's expensive proposition, you know, yeah. to have the sets and the CGI and uh, all of that. So we'll yeah, see it, like too much like it, Mad Max, you know, the future kind of is kind of dependent on how they decide to go with it. Yeah. So it's a shame because there is a huge universe, but they do a great job in the like, what combined almost five hours between the two films that they're able to achieve, especially if you add the like four shorts in between the two. So sure. Um, yeah, no, well, it was a absolute pleasure. Gentlemen, I always look forward to getting to talk and uh, hang out and talk geek shit. Yeah. Nerd. Nerd. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, guys. All right. Well, thanks. Have a, a great evening, and I will talk to you guys soon. Love you. Thanks for your time. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, really enjoy it. Yeah, we'll see you next time. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye. So there you have it. Thanks to Palmer and Twinkie for being my friends and podcast co-pilots for this episode. Thank you to Moto, my brother, for our rock and theme music. Thank you to you for listening or watching. Uh, again, if you'd like to check out the extended opening of me going through all this sort of stuff from 1994, you can do so over at David Al or Instagram, my Instagram page, David Allman, uh, U-L-L-M-A-N. And of course, you can find Long Walk Short Drink on Twitter and um, as well as YouTube. If you're not watching this, but listening to this, you can see a bunch of stuff over at YouTube. And uh, maybe I'll post that introduction there. No. <laughs> or YouTube. While on YouTube or whatever podcast platform you listen on, if you uh, if you feel so inclined, maybe give us a five star review and uh, or and or and or a written review. That'd be dynamite. And uh, I don't know. Tell your friends about it if you think they'd be into this uh, same sort of thing. But regardless, I'm grateful for you listening. Grateful for you watching. And uh, until next time, cheers, long walkers. Place, more than just a uh, just a spot on the map is a symbol uh, to me of everything everything I've ever aimed for you're always running 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 and when you have time just to sit out and relax and especially at a place where time seems to stand still sometimes uh, 
the cabin means more than any word could ever say, you know. It's just a symbol of, of my life. It was actually uh, Eric's cousin. He, he uh, had the idea and we had come camping up into the woods. And he decided, okay, you guys need something to keep us out of the rain. And uh, so we, we built a cabin. First couple times I remember it, uh, all we did was basically just sit around by a campfire. There were a few nights I rained so we'd be in the cabin, but we didn't do a whole lot. I don't think we went to the pits for the longest time. I know we, we didn't play the guitars. A lot of that happened with the guitars and everybody. Like, I've played for a long time, but I had a flat tire in the winter. And uh, we couldn't go where we were going to go, so we ended up in my room singing bad karaoke and, and playing music. And it was, it was soon after that that I came out for the first time to the cabin and brought guitars. And it also gave me something to do, because I didn't really know everyone too well at that point. And that's where I brought the music into it. He probably came out a couple more times, and for the longest time it was just him. Then uh, Corey is probably the next one that came out. Maybe Nick brought his out. So I started getting music into it. I got a guitar, Bauman did. Seth came out a couple times, and oh, Logan got bongos. He came out. And it just became what we did. We played music. Cabin was music. Cabin music. And uh, we thought it'd be neat since everyone Almost everyone could play or tried to play or did something to, to organize the last cabin night that we could all be there as mini concert. Well, the idea behind it was since everyone there played music, but randomly, like one week, someone would play or someone would play a few songs, might as well just get everyone together at once and play, play it all. That was probably one of the best nights I've ever had out at the cabin. And it was probably so great just because everybody was being themselves and everybody was here and it gave everybody a chance just to show off their talents. Best display of the talent out at the cabin I've ever seen. It was a few weeks before everyone started leaving and it was the last night I guess that everyone could be there. Like the next week Heidi would be gone and after that someone would be gone and then someone would be leaving. So I mean that was the one night everyone who's ever been there like regularly could be there that night that's when we had it. That's why we had it. Just one last bash. Go out with the bang. 